You are now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Jurassic Park Edition. Dr. Ben and my dear Dr. Jake, welcome to the Jurassic Park Podcast. <laughs> is that a microphone? <laughs> Dude, what is this place? How did you do this? <laughs> you did it, you crazy... There's foam on the wall. Son of a biscuit. You <laughs> <laughs> did it. <laughs> We're going to make a little bit of money on this place. <laughs> People are generous with our end of year fundraiser. Uh, <laughs> we spared many expenses. <laughs> we certainly did. <laughs> he said, looking at all the egg crate on the wall. Hey, folks. My name is Nathan. I am your humble and obedient host of Sanity at the Movies. Today, we are talking about Jurassic Park 1993's blockbuster summer event film, arguably the biggest, greatest blockbuster of them all. I mean, I'm not really sure that Avengers Endgame or, I mean, you could maybe put Titanic in terms of things that just felt seismic and game-changing and awesome. I'm just not sure maybe that there's been anything. That's, maybe that's hyperbole, but I'm having trouble thinking. Short, short of Jaws and Star Wars, I think Jurassic Park is the other one that's been just like that. I mean, Avengers was seismic because we'd all kept up with it for 10 years, and now we have to go see the finale. But in that sense, it wasn't different in kind than like a TV show finale that everybody's been watching or something like that. It was culturally, it felt significant, but it, it wasn't like this changed special effects or I'm seeing something that I've never seen before. It was just like, that was a good Avengers movie, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I think the only comparable thing in the last 10 years is going to be Top Gun Maverick. So probably. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Me and me and Ben have our tickets. (laughs) (laughs) Ironically, (laughs) <laughs> ironic i'll just tell the audience it's ironically ironic. me and ben are seeing top gun on tuesday like a special oh fan of this special fan event <laughs> neither so one of us cares about top gun at all and but i've never seen it i'm care. never going to see it i care jake is like he loves three things he loves his wife he loves america he loves top gun <laughs> in that order and <laughs> and sorry kids yeah yeah sorry. and then we we could start ranking the kids but i didn't want to because I don't know which one's number four. But yeah, Jake's got other commitments. Actually, he's, to, to, to be quite generous to Jake, he's, he's got kid commitments that day. Kid, kid-mitments? Kid-mitments. Ben wanted me to make that portmanteau. He was signaling for me <laughs> to do like it. More like a portmanteau. <laughs> <laughs> that was hilarious and deserves all the laughter you're giving it. <laughs> uh, no, Jake, it deserves more. <laughs> Luckily, our audience is still laughing, and we'll wait, and we'll wait. This is always my favorite bit, well, where I pretend like the audience is laughing, and I have to wait for them. Also waiting for Jake's microphone to stop doing the weird thing. All right. So, Jurassic Park, seismic. Is that what we were Seismic. Say? Yeah. Yep. It caused ripples in the film industry, much like a T-Rex approaching a car with a little glass of water. Those kinds of... <laughs> hey, Mr. T-Rex, what are you going to do with that glass of water? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Waiting again. It's chaos the- theory. Yeah. Ben. Chaos yeah. theory. I didn't think he would do that, but I was wrong. <laughs> Podcast. Still waiting for people to stop laughing. When Dr. Ian Malcolm wants to show you chaos theory, don't let him. It'll be kind of weird and touchy. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's good advice. Arguably, would we count that as sexual assault now in today's lame, unwanted Probably. sexual advances? No, yeah. it was wanted. Yeah. Well, that's that always makes the difference, doesn't it? All right. We're not here to talk about uh, sexism and survival situations, guys. We're here to talk about Jurassic Park, which I guess means we will have to talk about sexism yeah, and survival mm-hmm. situations eventually. This is this movie is a pretty fascinating icon of it's a time capsule. Time capsule of a certain style of feminism. We often point to it. I think it's like one of our go-to examples because it is a good go-to example for this style of feminism. Yeah, Laura Dern playing a pretty feminine character mm-hmm. for. The entirety of the movie mm-hmm. and then given and then she gets two or a, three a lines. Couple lines and woman scene. inherits the earth and yep. her big speech well, anyway i suppose we could talk about it when we get to it but jurassic park it's a movie that we're talking about and let me introduce us uh, i am nathan i'm your humble and obedient host that is ben he's the pastor who's a nope He's the preacher who's a teacher of cinema. That's right. And then why don't you do your regular job and introduce the other guy? I will. It's Jake Menzel. He's the pastor who's a master of cinema. Thanks. Yeah. Which one of us is Hammond? Which one of us is Grant? And which one of us is Ian Malcolm? You're Hammond. Jake is Malcolm and I'm Grant. Okay. It's pretty easy. You're a hero. <laughs> You're a hero. Jake's yeah. a rock star slime ball. <laughs> I mean, there's no reason for me to be self-aggrandizing. Who how many buttons are on, a t- are on a shirt? That's true. That's true. Apparently, Ian, Mal- or Ian Malcolm really argued for that. Apparently, that was <laughs> Jeff Goldblum. He, he just thought that the character should be heroic and sexy, so he fought for both of those things. He fought for the open shirt, and he fought for the Malcolm gets out of the car and helps lead the t-rex so like originally malcolm was supposed to be more of a coward in that scene but jeff goldblum thought that he should be a hero too which is a nice bit of spielberg optimistic humanism it also doesn't track at all with what we've been told about the malcolm character i mean i guess oh you always he secretly has a heart of gold or does he oh he does you know who doesn't have a heart of gold is that lawyer (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna make a fortune with this place did you know he left those kids in that car did you see that yeah i did well when when you gotta go ben it was traumatizing you gotta go okay we we gotta we gotta i feel like the girl pointed that out a couple times did she he left us he left us yeah wow well maybe it traumatized her too must have yeah yeah. Well, she's had a couple bad. Well, she had the bad father figure that's getting a divorce, I guess. And then she has the bad father figure of that lawyer. And then she has the great father figure of <laughs> Dr. John Grant. Alan, or Alan Grant. Grant. Yeah. Grant. Yeah. That, that well fleshed out three dimensional character, Alan Grant. <sighs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> Who gets away with being pretty creepy at the top of the movie yes he does oh i love that scene i think that's a great and, uh, guys uh, there's so much to talk about we're, we're all over the place uh, uh, listen here's the context of what we're doing we did jaws and that's like the beginning of the blockbuster era and now we're doing what you could kind of argue is a signpost of the blockbuster era you could say or maybe the end of a certain kind of blockbuster independence day is the beginning of the end I, what, what you might argue is that the smart blockbuster extends through about Jurassic Park and then Independence Day is the rise of the big, loud, eat your popcorn, we don't actually have to have a plot blockbuster that would take us through Armageddon, the rise of Michael Bay. I, I don't know that I actually buy this argument. I'm just saying I've heard it before mm. and it's somewhat compelling. 
I just don't know past Independence Day if there is anything that was billed as a summer blockbuster that's worth really going back to. I mean, like you can not Matrix. Wasn't that before Independence Day? No, no, no. Uh, Independence really? Day is like ninety no. three. Yeah, no way. Yeah, no, no. yeah, yeah. Jurassic Park's ninety three. Independence Day is maybe ninety six. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're right. Matrix is ninety nine. Matrix is ninety nine. Yeah. Okay. So Matrix. Yeah. So Matrix right. would be another sign point, sign or turning point or something like that. If you want to track the history of the blockbuster, but but I think we could all agree that from Jaws to Jurassic Park slash Independence Day, that's that's kind of one era that's ending. Mm. Like Jurassic Park and Independence Day are kind of the double. Yeah. We're transitioning into this, the, the the big loud dumb era because the '80s blockbuster, it's pretty smart. Even the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies that we like to make fun of are smart in the way that they're constructed. Arnold has a sense of humor. Arnold understands. Arnold Schwarzenegger is in on the joke right. that is Arnold Schwarzenegger. He understands his own improbability and he plays to it and he has got a great sense of humor and that's what's likable about him. That's what's likable about Bruce Willis. Stallone maybe less so in on the joke, but Rambo is still a well-constructed movie. The Aliens movies are are, are well done. The 80s, 80s Spielberg, obviously the Indiana Jones movies are very well done. We're, we're not really seeing big, loud, and dumb. We're seeing big, loud, and smart in the 80s, and I think mm-hmm. that's why people are well, so fond you, of those what things. what you had, like we talked about in our Jaws episode, was this sense that you have an audience shift, and that audience shift, how much of them want something that is actually smart? Right. And what if we brought all of our smart, savvy, hip, sideways to the material sensibilities to, like the classic B-film genre that sells itself. Right. What if we made something that was both populist and smart and cool all at the same time? What Can, can we actually pull that off? Right. And Spielberg, he's the genius that cracked the code. And then, but then from there, what studios inevitably begin to realize is, well, actually, who needs smart? Right. What what you need is spectacle that you can sell an opening weekend. Use the Jaws formula, which is advert blast people on TV, make them think that this is the must see event of the summer based on advertising, and get those get them in the theater. Get a huge opening weekend. Have the idea that sells itself. Right. Have the special effects. Pour money into special effects, and then don't spend time on your script. Don't spend time on your plot. Don't spend time on dialogue. That's time and money that's wasted because what gets butts in seats is the spectacle and the idea. Right. Or the star or both. And while Independence Day is fairly well constructed compared to the schlock that we get later, like Armageddon. It's so obviously downstream it's, it's and, a, and headed in the direction of just Michael Bay. Right. Mm-hmm. Independence Day is the first that's like, right. actually, let's just, if you blow up the White House and you put that on a TV ad, that's what's selling People it. People will come. People will come. People and will come, Ray. People will come. Yeah, exactly. And- it's pretty stupid. And Roland Emmerich goes on to make, you know, Godzilla, which is really stupid. The Matthew Broderick Godzilla and... Day After Tomorrow, just just dumb blockbuster right. after dumb blockbuster. Some of them have their charms, but they're all pretty dumb. Michael Bay makes dumb movies. Well, then you have people are just sort of cycling through conceits. Okay, we did dinosaurs and we did space aliens. Okay, well, what doomsday scenarios? What kind of doomsday scenarios can we have? All right, asteroid headed or meteor headed to Earth. Right. Okay, so we've got, you know, two of those movies. Okay, what about a new ice age? Mm-hmm. Okay, what about a pandemic? Okay, what about... Uh, the studios were so competitive, as they are today, but they were so competitive and so sort of 
what's the word, venal in their competition, that they would literally just, oh, they're making a volcano movie? Let's rush Dante's Peak into production and see if we can get it out before Volcano. Let's a deep impact in Armageddon are suddenly competing, going neck to neck. And you, you had these weird things where it would come, they would come in pairs. Like we're yeah. both two studios, both have the same high concept idea and they're both trying to execute it. We're seeing who can get there first and who can make the best money, the most money. You have like ants and a bug's life happen at the same time. And that yeah. was directly Jeffrey Katzenberg being at Disney, seeing bug's life develop. And then going to Dream's work and saying, let's get our <laughs> CGI ant movie out first mm-hmm. and make more money, uh, which they did. I don't know if they made more money, but they certainly got there first and made a lot of money with ants. That wonderful Woody Allen. I used to uh, love that movie as a kid, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I, I've never seen it. I suspect we I watched s- Bugs Life a lot. I, ants was I clever. I suspect I still might like ants. I don't, I don't know. know. It yeah. might just be gross and stupid. I'm I'm really not sure. Yeah, I don't know. It has the Woody Allen Paul that kind of hangs over it. But mm-hmm. in any case, I would say from Jaws to about Jurassic Park and Independence Day is the heyday of the like Jake was saying the blockbuster that is geared towards kids, but also has to play for an adult audience for a family audience there has to be some sometimes it's pretty gross it's like we, we gotta have something for daddy here too you know we gotta have some sex stuff or something but so i'm so i'm just looking up a list of the biggest summer blockbusters but uh, 96 independence day 97 is men in black mm-hmm. men right. in black is still a relatively smart yeah I, smarter than independence it, it's day. not that there's not going to be exceptions to this rule i mean yeah i was i was about to look up the same the same thing and yeah men in black was in the back of my mind too it is smart, but it's still that same sort of like it is a high concept kind of kind of thing, and it's not just it's it it's a twist. It's like mm-hmm. okay, aliens. Uh, we've done Close Encounters. We've done Independence Day. We've done ET. What about if they're among us? And what about if there's a secret agent? What if we play with the conspiracy theory idea? What mm-hmm. if we play with a little bit? We throw a little bit of James Bond into the like. And then we go megawatt star power. Like, it's just had a lot going mm-hmm. for it. It's worth doing. Yeah, I mean, I love Men in Black. I, it's not that there's not smart movies made after 96. I mean, The Matrix is a smart movie. Yeah. But I guess what it is is I don't think in the 80s they were as prone to say, well, you don't have a screenplay, but you do have a concept. And so here's a billion dollars, Michael Bay. In other words, there's a whole crop of movies happening in the 90s into the 2000s that just aren't even trying to be good. We've accepted as a society that a popcorn movie doesn't have to be well-constructed, doesn't have to have compelling characters. It just has to have spectacle and the money on the screen. I mean, you can get into the 2000s and see the launch of the blockbuster franchise it's just hard to separate that in your, I mean, not that Transformers and other blockbuster franchises weren't launched, but Pirates was a thing. Right. You forget about Raimi actually being a blockbuster hit because we have this whole category in our minds now of the superhero film. Right. But Batman was that way. Yeah. I mean, what I, well, the Batman movies are actually perfect examples of the later ones like Schumacher and stuff. Perfect mm-hmm. example of movies where it's like, we've got a high concept thing that sells toys. So we don't need a script. We don't need like an actual compelling idea. We just need who's going to play the villains and what's the highest star we can get. What's a package that we can put together as opposed to 
do it's the difference between do we have a movie and do we have a package that we can sell? Yeah. And Batman and Robin is a package that you can sell. It's not a movie. And I would say most, even the dumbest 80s blockbusters are movies <laughs> with scripts. <laughs> even something that felt like a package, like, well, let's get the coolest SNL stars, old SNL stars to fight ghosts. You know, that's a package idea. But Ghostbusters still has at least two thirds of a script. I'd say it kind of falls off at the end. But and turns into a, a light show, but it, it's got two thirds of a really fun script, and, and I think most of the '80s movies are like that. There's somebody had a vision, somebody wrote a script, somebody had something. I mean, I'm, I'm very broadly generalizing. You'll be able to find exceptions on either side of the line, but I'd say broadly we can we can kind of say from Jaws to Jurassic Park is one era, the era of the the smart Amblin style blockbuster, and then from Jurassic Park Independence Day to the early 2000s is the era of the dumb, big, loud Michael Bay stuff. And then we go, and then the franchise era hit, and we've never never recovered. We've never never recovered, and we never will, (laughs) as long as it remains profitable. Uh, I mean, Jurassic Park is... uh, also marks a milestone and then i and that i think it really is the end of spielberg's interest in making entertainment well if you look at how cynical i mean jurassic park is i feel spielberg's cynicism about the project that he's doing at every point well we'll get into this but spielberg wanted to do schindler's list And they said, we'll give you the money for Schindler's List, but you have to do Jurassic Park first. And I just think it's written all over this movie. I I mean, it's obviously that he cares about the dinosaurs. Like, he's delivering. He's a good showman. He's a good director. He can't help but make a good movie. And I think he cares. I'm not trying to say this is just a slapdash piece of junk. No, but he is, like, shoving it in your face. You want merch? You want branding? I'm going to give you merch and branding, and I'm going to mock you for it, and I'm going to have the lawyer be like, we're going to make a killing off this, and it is my meta-commentary on this thing that we're doing, and I'm going to shove it in your face. So the lawyer is going to be, we're going to make a killing off of this, this is awesome, and at every turn he's going to be like, you want merch, you want a logo, you want Jeeps, you want action figures, you want toys. Uh, let's just make all the toys and stock them in the thing and just zoom in on all of them and make it a part. Like, it's just, it feels in a lot of ways like there is a a cynical, self-aware, I know that this movie is a crazy cash grab mm-hmm. and it's going to make bank and I kind of hate myself for it. Or I hate the studio or I hate that this is how this works now. I know that I am part of the machine. Well, and especially if you compare it to the hungry young filmmaker who made Jaws and found ways to take a fairly heartless story and and put nice little human moments. Jurassic Park has one semi-human conceit, which is Dr. Grant becomes the father. But other than that, there's not a ton of... I mean, Spielberg's he's good. He's very good at what he does. But this is this is the greatest craftsman in the world doing a good job in order to do the job and be done with it as opposed to somebody who actually really cares about the material and well and it's shows in that opening scene compared to the opening scene of jaws i think that it's a statement i don't think it's an accident you brought it up in our jaws review yeah in the jaws review where you talked about how you know iconic and memorable and and yeah in in chrissy's final swim is set up 
in such a way that you have this primordial actor of judgment mm-hmm. and vengeance that she is, she is. We all, in some weird, in some part of our brain, we all feel like she deserves it and we therefore pity her or feel vindicated or whatever it is we feel. Or something. But, but in the opening, you have a, a parallel scene in the opening scene of Jurassic Park. And the difference is this guy doesn't deserve anything except we all do. Like it's just a capricious force of nature that you cannot tame. You can't handle it. You're trying to handle it and it handles you and you just happen to be there and, and have the conceit that you can handle it. Mm. And so guess what? Sucks to be you. But I think the Spielberg who cares about telling that story would actually have the guys be like, oh, it doesn't matter. Show them yeah. actually make the mistake. He actually does a nice job. I think the the scene that actually, where you actually feel that as, as slapstick and sitcom as it is, is the, the demise of Dennis Nedry. Dennis, Dennis Nedry oh, yeah. Where it's like, Absolutely. this guy does not respect it and he's about to pay. And we all have that kind of sick feeling in our yeah. stomach as he mocks this thing that's about to. Yeah, he, he's the one who gets the divine vengeance kill. Right. And I think that in a in a really well done opening to Jurassic Park, that's actually you'd have some amount of that feeling. But this mm-hmm. just feels kind of perfunctory you, to you, me. You do have a tiny callback to Jaws when his torso is being moved up and down the cage, just yeah, yeah, like yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chrissy in the water. But Chrissy is screaming, "Oh my God, help me!" and stuff like that. Like, there's just so much more humanity to what happens in Jaws. Some of it unfortunate, as we discussed in that review, mm-hmm. but uh, especially in high definition. But but there's just we're telling a story with characters and Jaws, even this little opening suspense set piece. Whereas I guess you get a little bit of Muldoon's character and Muldoon is a cool character that I loved as a, as a, as a little boy. I thought he was like the, the, the cool, one of the coolest characters. Of my, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the Jurassic Park is the Jurassic Park. What am I? 90 years old. The Jurassic Park is just not the same as the Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of le- uh, Spielberg's level of commitment and care, I don't think. Which is not, this is not a lead into a podcast where I just say, I don't like Jurassic, I hate things that people like. Jurassic Park's great. It's a really enjoyable movie. But I don't think it's on the level of filmmaking that Jaws or Raiders or some of the other pop Spielberg or even some of the later serious Spielberg stuff is on. I mean, Jurassic Park is a relatively silly movie in terms of its... It's character. I don't know. We could talk about it. We could talk about it. Can we do some context, though? Yeah. All right. Let's talk about Michael Crichton. I'm interested to hear what you guys' experience with Michael Crichton is, because he's one of those guys with Grisham, Clancy, King, and maybe a handful of others. He was just omnipresent. I mean, maybe not a handful of others. Maybe nope. Danielle Steele in the romance genre, but none of us cared about that. Right. Uh, those were the guys, and they were just in supermarkets, at Kroger, at Albertsons, whatever your supermarket chain is, you'd see these books and you were aware of the titles. You talked about the conceits on the playground. Everybody knew that it was about a killer clown. Everybody knew Jurassic Park was about genetic dinosaurs. Everybody, uh, maybe Grisham kids didn't talk about as much because lawyer stuff just mm-hmm. doesn't translate into a playground conversation. But I think even Clancy, like I read all those things and I don't know that I could name any of them that I particularly love, but they were just there. It was like what you read back yep. then in the, I guess, early 90s is what we're talking about. Late 80s, early 90s. So Crichton's really an yeah, interesting. Even into the late 90s. Yeah. I mean, because what? 
late nineties. To me, I associate those books with middle school. Right. It should have been like yeah. late nineties. Well, and those books had a lasting enough impact that you might go back and read like Jurassic Park hit before the movie, but after the movie, kids were still reading it. Kids obviously each each generation of kids would discover King and The Shining and It and Carrie and stuff like that. But with Clancy too, Clear and Present Danger, Patriot Games, Hunt for Red October, stuff like that was just and it really is middle school kids, even with Clancy as complex and geopolitical as he is, it's like I think when I read those books and and I assume probably when you read The Firm or whatever yeah, you read by, I, I by read, Grisham. I read there was a time when I was up on every Grisham, like yeah. I'd read every Grisham book and it was that hmm. middle school time frame. Wow. So yeah, that I got into Grisham, I got into Grisham deep for a couple of years. And so whether it was the firm or the Pelican Brief or any, any of them, mm-hmm. uh, a yeah. time to kill, it would be fun. You go ahead and continue the conversation. I'll go up, I'll go and look and see. How many Grishams? Yeah, it, it was about the time that he wrote his, I never actually read his baseball book, but that was his stepping away from- The lawyer. The lawyer. That was, the, that was about the time that I was done with him. It's just interesting. I, I don't know if kids, middle schoolers today have the equivalent. They've got Harry Potter. They've got YA novels that are marketed to them. I assume a generation of kids like I was probably still f- discovered the same <laughs> Stephen King books. But Every Grisham book from 89 to 2000. There you go. So what's, wow. the, what's the last Grisham book you read? The Brethren. The Brethren. Huh. Yes, you have not even heard of that one. And, and that is exactly when he decided to branch out. And set back from legal thrillers, and I didn't care. So you read Time to Kill and Pelican Brief, and uh, uh, yep, The Firm. Nineteen eighty nine, The Time to Kill. Ninety one, The Firm. Ninety two, The Pelican Brief. Ninety three, The Client. Ninety four, The Chamber. Ninety five, The Rainmaker. Ninety six, Runaway Jury. Ninety seven, The Partner. Ninety eight, Street Lawyer. Ninety nine, The Testament. Two thousand, The Brethren. Right. And so at some point in there, I jumped in, read the back catalog, and then every year there was a new Christian book, and I read it. Until 2000, which would have been what my sophomore, junior, sophomore ish year of high school. Yeah. Then I stopped caring. I just wonder if kids today have an equivalent. Like, is, is no. there a supermarket bestseller that people. It's, it's the, I mean, the, the YA market has become so big with Potter and Potter knockoffs like well, yeah, Riordan just, and then just, dystopia knockoffs. Yeah, all the Hunger Games yeah. type yeah, yeah, stuff. Yeah. There's that one that Disney was going to make uh, Wings of fire or something like that yeah i don't know wings of something but it was weird like all these guys had a market like housewives would read king and grisham and stuff like that and kids like middle schoolers it's just like these weird this weird window the the the, these venn this venn diagram of groups of people that you wouldn't think would all intersect but it's like these novels were written. Like a hardworking dude isn't going to read any of these things because he's just not going to have time, probably. But middle school boys, bored housewives. Well, and the, and the thing about them was they were ubiquitous. You could get them anywhere. They felt just serious enough that they helped you feel adult, but they were very pulpy and they always had a sex scene. They always had a sex scene. I, I, was, I thought maybe you were going to say that. And Cl- Clancy, not as much, but Grisham, Grisham definitely. Grisham always had a sex King scene. King for sure. King. Crichton, not so much actually. No, Crichton had gore. I mean, Crichton yeah. really went overboard on the yeah. violence, yes, especially in the Jurassic Parks. I remember that. But even in things like Congo or Sphere, some of those other things, there was mm-hmm. always going to be something that kind of felt like 
whoa. Mm-hmm. Crichton was a good provocateur. Yeah. So Crichton's really only one of those guys I read. Like I had, I, for better or worse, no interest in Grisham, almost no interest in Clancy. I think I read Hunt for Red October, but I may have just started it and not finished it. I just had no, I was like, I was not interested in political thrillers. I was not interested in legal thrillers. As a kid, as a teen, all I wanted was like fantasy, sci-fi. So Crichton kind of Crichton, Crichton, did enough Crichton, of that. Crichton fit in there enough that I read a number of his books. So my my uncle, my uncle was one of the smarter guys that I know, and I really respected him a lot. And he's a chemical engineer, and now like the partner in a chemical engineering firm that does a lot of big work down here. Mm-hmm. He had a sweet tooth. Yeah, you'd go over to his house. And he and his wife were not able to have kids. And so he had the cool gaming system. They had a lot of money. They had all the cool gaming systems. They had the latest, best computer. And he had bookshelves of... These kinds of books. All of these books. Probably then, Robert Ludlum, The Born Guy, and... Uh, all of it. James all of Clavel. It. Yeah, and my dad read that kind of stuff too, but I never all even... All of it. And so... The spy stuff. And he would just sort of like low-key introduce me to stuff, and I would either like it or I wouldn't. And then that would just go on a little kick, you know, and I would right. just be able to take what I wanted off his shelf and read it. The know. thing that's maybe important to say is we didn't have good TV back then. There, It's not really so much a sweet tooth, I think, as like a savory tooth. Like what is adult entertainment? They're making movies like Independence Day, which which you don't care about if you're an older dude that much. But then there's not just like something that's it's it, it's got it need you need something that has the um, the requisite amount of the requisite amount of sex and violence and a, a plot that moves but also has an interesting idea at the center and yeah. something to say about the world something that just feels like it has a little bit of nutrition not a lot but a little bit of nutritional without value without demanding too much of you and so that's hmm. all these guys that's exactly the sweet spot that they hit and i think that's exactly right cuz you have a, a a really smart guy you know, and he loved his high concept sci- sci-fi too. He, you know, he loved Asimov. Right. Still does. Yeah. Still will just go on, go on riffs about Asimov and how brilliant he is and hmm. any number of other high concept sci-fi writers that I could never get into because I found them boring. Right. But but he, for him, he loved that sort of thing. But, but yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that's... He, he, they didn't watch TV. Right. Like... I think for a lot of those people, things like Breaking Bad have taken the place or Sopranos, the HBO classic lineup that everybody knows is kind of like, here's the sexually debauched, violent, but also with a plot that adults can be engaged by. It's not just, oh, no, we have to stop the computer timeout from happening before the aliens. Whatever. It's like, there's something here that we can talk about that we can think about. It's Game of Thrones, it's Breaking Bad, it's all that stuff. But there's also lots of purient things that boys of all ages like for worse, not for better or for worse, for mm-hmm. worse. And so I, th- I think TV does a good job of, well, so to speak, of filling that niche now. But back then we needed novelists to do it. And I would say Crichton was the worst of them. Well, the other thing, the other thing too, <laughs> uh, just to, yeah. is that podcasting fills a lot yeah, of, I, I think that's of, of gaps for that sort of thing like infotainment at its highest is going to be podcasting and so you can listen to like you can listen to pretty you can listen to pretty genius people bringing 
high level cutting edge science down to the popular level. Well, and Crichton and just you can listen to Crichton as proto podcaster is great because he is one of those guys who's mm-hmm. a populist who's yep. going to find whatever the cool scientific thing is and say, well, hey, let's, I mean, you could imagine him being in this era and doing podcasts on like, this is how we, dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. This is how we would do it. And we, and and he would, he he would be like, it'd be like a a Joe Rogan or whatever, but he would like, he would get the concepts, he would get the science, he'd be able to track, but he would have the cool scientist on who could talk about, well, this is how we would do it. Like if we could find a blood sample, a DNA sample, it's actually not that far out of the realm of pot. Maybe we're not technolo- technologically able right now, but the idea that we would we could fill in gaps with frog DNA, you'd pull all that stuff together. Yeah, it's right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you could see him. Yeah, but he didn't have that outlet, so he had to write crummy, terrible <laughs> novels. And Creighton is the worst. I, I think King is undisciplined and puerile but actually gifted by god with the ability to write sentences and write characters and things i think king is the best of the bunch just in terms of craftsmanship i think grisham probably lands closer to that than most of the other ones we mentioned grisham has a little bit of something like he's he's interested in writing a sentence maybe he doesn't always do it well but he wants to at least Mm -hmm. do it clancy was just okay. A Clancy is really just interested in Clancy's like Crichton. If Crichton were interested in socio, the socio-political world and military technology, yeah, I think. Something. And who's the know. other one that we mentioned? Was there another one? Uh, Ludlum. I well, mean, yeah, Ludlum's just proto Clancy. I mean, he did. He was just doing Clancy before Clancy. But Ludlum's isn't he like a pretentious writer? Yeah, um, he's pretty pretentious. I, I think. I, I don't really. know. I, I could never get into him. The born, the born, the original born novel is so boring if you try and read it. But yeah, Crichton and Clancy are similar in that it doesn't feel like either one of them actually cares that much about writing. What they care about is like, like Clancy was interviewed by the CIA after Hunt for Red October because they were like, whoa, how did you predict like everything that, you know, I just went and talked to people and figured things out. Oh, well, you, we thought that you were a spy or something like they they were concerned at how right Mm -hmm. he got it. And, And I think that's what fascinated Clancy and he could care less about the psychological struggles of Jack Ryan or something. It's one of those reasons why I think the the Krasinski Jack Ryan and a lot of the later attempts to do Jack Ryan have failed because Jack Ryan's not actually interesting. And Clancy was never interested in Jack Ryan. He was interested in, well, what would happen if X? And so a good Jack Ryan story has to Mm -hmm. do that. Have X. You can't just be like... That's why they had to throw a bunch of sex and nudity into that stupid show yeah and, that, that show sucked because it, yeah, was, it was just terrible. like we, we didn't have anything so let's just adult it up and see if yeah, it can trick I mean, people I, we, Amanda and I tried to watch it because it's like oh Jack Ryan John Krasinski this might be some fun popcorn and the next thing you know you've got boobs and it's like well I didn't know yeah that, that's the end of that there's nothing compelling here I checked out on that show Meredith was watching some of it and it was like the, the big climactic thing and they were like well, we saved this guy through a complicated diplomatic thing. And I was like, okay, cool. That like, they got him out of this third world country. That's, that's like a Clancy thing. And then Krasinski's like, but I want to take down the bad guy. And then they all grab like machine guns and they're running through the compound and just mowing bad guys down. 
And it's, it's just like, this is not, I mean, I'm not a huge Clancy guy, but I did grow up with Clancy. And the whole thing that was fun about Clancy is that he tried to posit how these situations would actually work. And the way that they don't work is mm-hmm. Jack Ryan just runs in with a machine gun like Rambo. It just felt so reductive. Yeah, well, and that's, I mean, that is th- the same exact appeal of a Grisham novel is you've got an impossible scenario and you've got to be a step ahead of everybody and outsmart everybody. And it's a puzzle. It's a puzzle box. How do you get out of this situation? Like you got trapped in this. It's not that Tom Cruise is a super lawyer. It's that he's the same lawyer as anybody would be. And now he has to f- figure out how to not be extricated into the firm or, or right. whatever. Well, he's, he's in and they've, they've got him trapped. And how does he get, how does he extricate himself right. and take them down in such a way that he can disappear and not, have it catch up to him and grisham's good at whether it's plausible or not he's good at making it feel plausible and that's what right. people like about those things right. it's just like cliffhanger 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 dangle the carrot keep right it going keep it moving and then you got your magic solution and he pulls it all together while walking the knife's edge at the end and it's like that's thrilling and cool and fun and exciting and mm-hmm he had drama and they trapped him with the prostitute on a beach and he had some drama with his wife, but they came through it and mm-hmm. whatever. I never even saw the movie. Yeah. That's funny. I'm taking mm-hmm. off beats from the movie as you talk because I think the movie just... No, the plot sticks in my head. Yeah. Right? Like... Huh. It's, it's a good plot. It's like... Yeah. And, and it's, it's cool when, when stuff... When a writer can pull something like that off. Oh, um, and every one of these guys is good at the opening chapters like... A mysterious man was doing something right. mysterious. <laughs> and then the end of chapter three is like, Jack Ryan was happy, but something terrible was about to happen and you better turn the page. <laughs> I mean, they're just, you can see the mechanics of it and yeah. yet it, it works. Absolutely. Yeah, you, don't, you don't care. You, you want to find out. These guys all make 40 promises at the beginning, like read the, to the end of this book and you'll see this and you'll find out how he gets out of this. And well, that's why I never actually went to Stephen King because I did try to graduate with R.L. Stein. Mm-hmm. Like into his fear dot fear street. And, yeah. Fear street. Yeah. So I've moved up from goosebumps to fear street and he did the same sort of thing. But the, the more graduated it got, the more it was just like, 10 times the blood and now mm-hmm. sexual content. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, it was so compelling from just like the carrot dangling in the, in the plot bait. And it just made you feel gross and drug you through so much grossness that I was just like, if this is what the horror genre turns into as you mature, then Stephen King is like, I don't want any part of that. Right. And I just never bothered trying. If you had, what you would have found is that Stephen King was very good at doing exactly that, both in terms of the mechanics of the suspense and in terms of the showing all kinds of gruesome and terrible things, but doing it so artfully and casually that it felt sort of like it was just happening organically. Like, yeah, I'm just happy to be telling a story that has a giant carrot dangling. And I don't want to show you this gruesome thing, but it's what happened to the, the clown yeah, and ripped Street, off the kid's arm. And what am I going to do? Fear Street was never like that. Yeah. Fear Street was just like, isn't it cool that blood's dripping down the walls and the... Yeah. Yeah. It, and but it was just like, no, it's not. It makes my stomach churn, actually. Sorry. I just didn't sign. It's like the Michael Bay of... Of kids' horror Kids' thing. horror is like... I. Okay, like 
Yeah, I never could. I never could even get into horror at all. Quite, well, quite like Jurassic Park was the closest I got. Yeah, which is an, it was an incredibly gory book with yeah, these long really descriptions gory. of people yeah, being yeah, eaten yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah. The, the book, Crichton, well, let's talk about him. So I've only read one Crichton. Timeline? I think you told me yeah, this before. Yeah, I did tell you that. Timeline! <laughs> so it was given by that same uncle. So he introduced me to each of the, I never read a Clancy because mm-hmm. I got sucked into Grisham and I love that and I love that world. And he'd given me Asimov way too early and sort of spoiled sci-fi. So he came back around like at some point in high school and and gave me Timeline. And I liked that book and I thought it was cool, but it, not cool enough that I wanted to go read more Crichton. I hated Timeline, <laughs> but I could see how, by that time I knew Crichton well enough that I could see all of his tricks and- Oh yeah. Yeah, I was in like, some of it was like, I was in AP physics or something like that at the time. And mm. we were talking about things like quantum foam and I felt- much more in tune with the the science of it was sort of, I don't know. Well, given who Crichton was, it, it's fascinating because, well, just to tell his story very quickly. So he went to Harvard. He studied English before switching to anthropology. He graduated summa cum laude in 1964. And then in 65, he attended Harvard Medical School, earned a medical degree in 69, but loved to write. Did not want to be a doctor, did not want to be a Harvard man, wanted to be a writer. This is what he said over and over and over again in these interviews that I found. And I just found that fascinating because his writing stinks. When you read Crichton, (laughs) he feels like a guy who loves ideas and has learned the most mechanical ways of setting these ideas in a novel that Mm -hmm. someone will pay for. I mean, Jurassic Park is pages and you remember ben it's pages of chaos theory and Uh, yeah it's been so long but yes i remember but i remember not resenting it for whatever reason no because the science is actually genuinely cool and interesting he was good at presenting it but it really is like a page of dr grant was being chased by a raptor it was exciting would the raptor get him and then you'll turn the page and it will be like back at the compound malcolm was still talking about chaos theory and then you'll turn page 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 there'll be diagrams literal diagrams illustrations as, as Malcolm expounds on chaos theory <laughs> and page, 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 and you'll get through that and it'll, you get to the end and it'll be like, I have more to say about chaos theory, said Malcolm. Suddenly there was a strange noise outside the door, you know, just the most mechanical, <laughs> like, oh no, here's uh, some suspense. And then you're making cu- me want to go back and, and page through <laughs> Jurassic Park. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm exaggerating in my mind a little bit, but I don't, I, I don't think much. Uh, anyway, Crichton always wants to be a writer. He writes pot boilers like bad pot boilers under a pseudonym and then in 68 he publishes andromeda strain and the rest is history he becomes the high concept science techno thriller guy and andromeda strains about an extraterrestrial disease right it's yeah it's been a while yeah but i don't think i've ever actually read it but i used to be more yeah, i read it i can't the remember it very well reverse right yeah, like the disease comes first, and but it's very grounded and realistic in terms of. It was fun. Of That's what I remember. If an extraterrestrial disease happened, this is how it would happen. And then he did some less successful novels like Terminal Man and things like that. But but the big ones that everybody remembers are Congo, which was 1980, turned into a very silly movie. But the book is again full of interesting information about. African explore, exploration about communication between gorillas and man about if there was if there was a, a lost city of Solomon here's where it would be like he just he knows how to ground all this stuff in mm-hmm. a ton of research in a way that is entertaining and then sphere which I still remember fondly 
Yeah, likewise. Sphere is about a undersea expedition that meets an extraterrestrial intelligence. And it's one of the best, just in terms of its concept, if not its writing, it's one of the best novels about like, if we met them from outer space, they would be so truly alien to us that nothing they would do would make sense. We wouldn't be able to wrap our heads. You know, we assume that if we met aliens, they'd be humanoids and they'd operate according to our laws of physics and stuff like that. But Sphere is just basically positing that if we met extraterrestrial life, it would be something so other that we wouldn't be able to even barely wrap our heads around it. And it does a lot of fun stuff with that. Part of what this extraterrestrial thing does is generate thoughts. Like if you, if you become possessed by the sphere, then whatever you think happens. And so some guys worrying about a giant squid attack, like the one from 2000 Leagues Under the Sea, and then a giant squid attacks the... You've, you, but, you, but you've given away the whole twist now. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert for a novel from 1987. It was really fun. Uh, yeah. I don't know that I'd actually recommend anyone read it or not, but... And then Jurassic Park in 1990 is his big hit and what he'll always be remembered for. And that novel really is about chaos theory. It's about genetics, and it's about the arrogance of modern science, scientism, science, the religion of science, the church of science, Crichton hated. He had a big chip on his shoulder. He saw science, scientists as arrogant people who wanted to play God. He really did believe in like all the arguments that we're going to talk about in Jurassic Park where they're sitting around the table and Malcolm's saying, you packaged it and all this stuff. You stood on the shoulders of giants. Crichton really, really, really believed that and really hated modern science. It would be fascinating if Crichton was still alive to be commenting on COVID and things like that. I'm guessing he would probably be a much beloved by us and much hated by the liberal media figure. I'm just, I'm just guessing that's the direction he would have gone because he, he despised the arrogance of, of modern science as he saw it. And Jurassic Park's all about that. The, the John Hammond character is played as a callow evil man who gets devoured by gets gets a well-deserved dinosaur death because all he cares about is making a profit and standing on the shoulders of giants and then spielberg turns him into walt disney with a twinkle (laughs) in his eye and all this stuff (laughs) but interestingly Crichton loves the lawyer the lawyer Gennaro is a hero Gennaro and Muldoon team up much like the Sattler character teams up with Muldoon in the movie that's actually Gennaro's part they took it and gave it to the girl for the movie but Gennaro and Muldoon team up and they do like all this cool stuff and they they go and they fight dinosaurs they both survive if I'm remembering correctly <laughs> and they're just, they're just like it's kind of a buddy cop Gennaro and Muldoon <laughs> which and, and and Gennaro I remember was my favorite character as a kid like he was this really cool guy but he's just he's like a lawyer but he's going to do what it takes to fight the dinosaurs and get everybody off the island and then Spielberg's like ha ha lawyers <laughs> 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 they get eaten off of toilets <laughs> <laughs> but yeah uh, Crichton you also see it in that great screenplay for Twister you have the corporate scientists they have corporate sponsorship Carrie Elways and his evil scientists yeah. uh, <laughs> that are using all their technology to study tornadoes, whereas our hero scientists are just putting together ramshackle things and they, they have humility before the tornadoes. Cook cans. Right. Crichton really believed all that stuff. He's also famous for creating ER. And j- just as long as I'm ticking off the things that he's famous for, ER made him a lot of money. Man, how long did that show run? I mean, years and years and years. Never seen an episode. I've never seen an episode of ER either. I don't think I have either. But George Clooney's career was launched. Oh, that's right. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, that's I, the thing that I know about I it. I forgot. I forgot that that thing existed. 94 yeah. to 2009. Wow. Woo! Yeah. That's a long time. And so I don't know what else there is to say about Crichton. He's a very mechanical suspense purveyor who liked to talk about the cutting edge of techno babble. Some of his stuff hasn't aged very well simply because we've moved beyond whatever the technology was that he was talking about. A good example from the movie is Lex being excited about the computer thing hmm. and, and that kind of stuff. The novel spends a lot of time on like, what would the computer mainframe of this island be and how would you navigate it? And, and that felt exciting. But now you watch it and it's just like, this is silly. She has to travel over all these weird houses to find the information to close the doors or whatever. Uh, the things that have stuck with me about Crichton, he was suspenseful. I loved his novels, but there were those pages of techno babble in all of his novels that would just go on and on and on. He was also really mean spirited. In almost all of his novels, there's a scene where somebody succumbs to danger. Like, let's say somebody's attacked by a dinosaur. And what always happens is the heroes do not help that person because it's not in their bet in their self-interest to help those person this person and it's not like Crichton's making a statement about self-interest or anything it's just like his assumption is you wouldn't help somebody like if if kids were being eaten by dinosaurs in the car in one car over you would never get out of the car and what could you do what could you do except and, get eaten too and it's striking that 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 motif repeats itself again and again and again and in the in the novel lost world the hero and the villain are trapped under a jeep. The T Rex is come, and the hero's like, Well, actually, I, there's only one thing I can do. And then she, she kicks the bad guy out from under the jeep so that he's eaten by the T Rex instead of her. And it's really cold blooded. Wow. Um, and it's not like he pulls a gun on her. It's just like they're both cowering under there. And then, and he's been set up as the bad guy. So we're not meant to feel too bad, but it is just like we're both trying to survive right now. And uh, hey, if he gets eaten, then I'll be fine the T-Rex will be distracted. There's just always something like that in a Crichton novel. It really struck me reading them as a kid. I, I don't know that I have any larger point to make about it, except for that it's interesting that Spielberg so completely sentimentalizes the John Hammond character and the relationship between Grant and the kids. And of course, we're going to get out of the car. Not, not just Grant, but Ian Malcolm, of all people, is going to get out of the car to help protect the kids and draw the T-Rex away. It's just like, uh, Spielberg rightfully, I think, goes out of his way to humanize everybody except for the blood-sucking lawyer. Well, and maybe a handful of other characters that weren't worthy of of humanization. But yeah. This makes me want to do like a summer of pulp for the beginning. It would be fun to go back to some of just these things. Do a Grisham, do a Clancy, do a Crichton. Yeah. <laughs> and just, yeah, it would be fun to go back. It'd be fun to see what holds up what doesn't yeah well yeah six seven years into the book eight years into the bookening having a bunch of classic literature under our belt going back to some of the pulp stuff we fed on when we were kids mm -hmm. the interesting thing is a lot of these novels haven't really held up in the popular imagination but they they had movies like i think people obviously are always going to remember jurassic park because of the movie yeah. arguably people will always remember the firm because tom cruise helped launch his career with that i don't know how much people still read it but they certainly are still aware of it as a thing yeah because there was a popular movie same thing with a lot of this stuff so yeah i mean i guess as i talk about it i do have a certain nostalgia for all this stuff i mean it was a kind of a big part of my my middle school sounds like it was for all of us just yeah in terms of 
at least the things that you saw around like oh some kid's got a Crichton novel or a Grisham mm-hmm. or a a King or <laughs> or whatever. And I went to a Christian school. I mean, all this stuff was verboten in some level, but it didn't matter. Middle schoolers are going to watch and read what mm-hmm. middle schoolers are going to watch and read. Maybe that maybe that's what why it's part of why I have the nostalgia because some of this is like the you got to get the flashlight out and read it after when your parents think you're certainly King was a little bit like that for lots of people. So that's Michael Crichton. Anything else to say about the book, the book, or you guys' experience of Crichton or pop literature of the '90s? Or? Oh, I mentioned this to you the other day, but <laughs> I have a I have a, a monograph mm-hmm. on sovereignty and responsibility, like Christian Calvinist a theological book mm-hmm. by a former professor of mine from long well, long ago. But it he uses Jurassic Park and the Lost World especially the novels, I think, but maybe the movies a little bit, to talk about to talk about this, Crichton's interest in portraying this stuff, like the chaos theory versus control. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that ties into a theological discussion about sovereignty and responsibility, and he just, he just, he pulls a ton from those books. Uh, I think it's there. I, I don't, I mean, I haven't read the monograph, but I think Crichton would be very pleased and would feel like he had been well understood. It's not a gospel coalition I'm look. I'm looking to find some Christian theme that isn't there. I think Crichton right. was interested in that stuff. He certainly not as a Christian, but as someone interested in man playing God. Right. Yeah. As a as a pop philosopher, pop mm-hmm. psychologist, whatever. Not psychologist, but whatever you want to say. As yeah. a pop ideas guy, kind yep. of. What's that black guy that he's kind of out of vogue now? But the stars were all made of stardust. Neil deGrasse. Neil deGrasse. Tyson. Yeah, it's kind of the Neil deGrasse Tyson of his time. Crichton was just interested in all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and jurassic park plays with that stuff it's not a good book but it does play with that stuff Mm -hmm. interestingly and it's interesting to see the degree to which spielberg is interested and not interested in engaging with those things i think the dinner conversation is one of the better scenes in the movie it's also somewhat perfunctory given how much Crichton actually i don't know we could talk about the movie Uh, let me talk very briefly about where spielberg was at as i said he is trying to get into being an adult filmmaker very consciously at this time. Mm. He was the king of You pop- might want to phrase that differently. Yeah, he's trying to get into pornography. <laughs> no, he he wants to make movies for adults. He has been pigeonholed, he feels, as a kid's guy. He is the king of pop. I guess Michael Jackson was the king of pop, but he's the king of pop entertainment. And he really is being struggling, is struggling to be taken seriously as an artist. And he's kind of failing. Because Color Purple came out, it was a big hit, people loved Color Purple, but the critics hated it, and rightfully so. The Color Purple is cheesy and does not work, and it's got this corny musical score, and I don't know, did you guys ever have to watch Never no. seen it. The Color Purple? Well, there's, yeah, there's a reason you haven't seen it. I mean, you have seen Schindler's List because it works, yep. because everybody, that was a big deal. Color Purple's like a young populist filmmaker trying to make a serious statement and kind of failing and trying to make a serious statement about race and about women and not really understanding either one very well. Spielberg's always been uncomfortable with sex, even in his movies for adults. And he's not our premier maker of movies about race either, I wouldn't say, unless it's the Jewish experience, which he can talk about because I'm not saying you have to be the thing to make the thing. I'm just saying Spielberg's never been comfortable. And then he does Empire of Dreams, which I've weirdly never seen. Yeah, Empire of the Sun. Uh, Empire of the Sun, sorry. I've, uh, I've seen Empire of the Sun. I saw it as a kid and it was sort of traumatic because it captures like 
Well, this young boy was torn away from his family and put into a living hell with other wartime survivors, prisoners of war, Yeah, and had to survive. And I don't think it's actually a terribly brutal film, but I was a little kid, like yeah, a, just, like, like a f- really little when I saw that You're movie. kind of processing it on the Fievel Mouskowitz. Uh, no, absolutely. Um, yeah. And it was very effective. I would bet it's a decent movie. One of Christian Bale's, maybe, no, no, his introduction, right? Yeah, I think it's Christian like Bale's and, introduction. and introducing Christian Bale, one of those. Yeah. But that one wasn't a big success. And Spielberg has been sitting on the rights to Schindler's List, the novel, since the 80s and wanting to do it, but not, but knowing himself well enough to know I'm not quite mature enough to do this yet. And I don't know that I'm ready to wrestle with my own Jewish heritage. Like he says, he wasn't going to, to synagogue at the time. He does now. But that was all something that had to come to a head with the making of Schindler's List. Meanwhile, he's going through the 80s. I mean, he's making these adult entertainments. Is that a phrase I can use? Sure. You know what I mean, listener. They're not that successful critically or whatever, but he's doing E.T. He's doing the Indiana Jones trilogy. He's just having hit after hit after hit. He's keeps making the movie that's made the most money up to that time. First it was Jaws and then it was E.T. And maybe Raiders was in there for a minute and a half going neck and neck with George and Star Wars, of course. But he finally feels like I'm going to pull the trigger on Schindler's List in the, in the 90s. He's actually tried to give it to other filmmakers because he just doesn't feel confident about doing it. He gives it to Scorsese, I think, for a while. But then he's like, I want to do it. So he trades Scorsese, Cape Fear, for Schindler's List, which was a bad trade for Scorsese because nobody remembers or cares about Cape Fear. But Spielberg got Schindler's List. He goes to Universal. He says, I want to make that. And they said, sure, we'll give you the money to make Schindler's List finally. But there's this giant bidding war over this popular novel that really feels like it was written for you. And you're the only guy on the planet. Like, everybody's already assuming, Stephen, that you're going to make this movie. This, this novel is just made for you. So we'll, we'll let you make Schindler's List if you do this first. And it results in Spielberg working the hardest year of his life and then reaping the greatest rewards probably of his life. Because he works through 92 and, and like it's brutal. He shoots the footage for Jurassic Park and then they're working on special effects. He goes to Poland or wherever it is, is filming Schindler's List and he has to like stop filming Schindler's List. He gets done with a day of Schindler's List and then he goes and has to watch special effects tests for a T-Rex. And the emotional place that he said that put him in was just like insane like switching between a holocaust drama and fun dinosaur adventure was a just a crazy workload but b just like how do you balance those two things in your brain mm-hmm. and he's coming he's he's having a spiritual awakening he's wrapping his head around his own jewishness i mean it's just like his relationship with his dad and his mm-hmm. mom everything is hitting for him at the same time as he makes schindler's list and then He's also got to go and improve dinosaur special effects and edit dinosaur stuff at the same time. And he said he just hated that. Like he really resented Jurassic Park while he made Schindler's List. But then they both hit in 93. Schindler's Mm -hmm. List sweeps the awards. Spielberg is crowned as a filmmaker, not just for kids, but for adults. He's made one of the great adult dramas. He's made a drama that has brought the Holocaust I mean, I think downstream of it, it's hard to remember how how much Schindler's List just helped the conversation with the Holocaust even. I mean, people were just out of touch with what it was. It had been a few decades. 
since it was part of the conversation. Holocaust denial was at a all-time high, that which was why Spielberg finally decided he had to do it. And then he does it. And now our idea of the Holocaust, all of us, largely revolves around not real documentary footage, but what we remember from being forced to watch Schindler's List when whatever age we were collectively forced to watch it. Which I never was. There you go. Yep. So you don't know anything about the Holocaust. That's right. I've been to the Holocaust Museum. Yeah. Well, (laughs) so anyway, Spielberg releases the pop blockbuster that makes the most money up until the time Jurassic Park ushers in CGI special effects, changes the industry with Jurassic Park, and changes the industry with Schindler's List in 1993. It's the, you could argue it's the greatest year that a filmmaker has ever had, just in terms of a double triumph, one for one kind of audience, an art film triumph, and a spectacle triumph. And both of them, the most profound triumphs that you could have in that medium. Like, it's not just he made a good blockbuster and he made a good art film. It's that he made the blockbuster to beat all other blockbusters. And he made the art film, the, the, the adult drama, to, to beat all other adult dramas. He made the greatest blockbuster of all time and the greatest adult drama movie of all time, arguably, in one year. And then it's interesting what that does to Spielberg. He takes a few years off. And then I think he's kind of been chasing that ever since, you could argue, because it's like, he always kind of wants to make like he, he's never just said i, I want to be done making quote unquote spielberg movies he always wants to make another spielberg movie prove that he can still do it but then he he's more interested in making american adult dad movies with with tom hanks and so he just keeps trying to kind of balance those two things and i think becomes increasingly less successful at being steven spielberg as we knew him in the 80s and arguably as a good dad movie maker i guess i mean i i like most of his dad movies okay but i haven't seen any of them i really liked lincoln i I thought bridge of spies was kind of boring i mean they're all they're all good he's a talented guy i'm just gonna go out war horse nathan never saw war horse okay refused i I don't care about horses it's like those planet of the apes movies if a movie stars an animal i'm just it doesn't matter who made it for what purpose with what screenplay (laughs) i i'm out don't want an animal as my hero unless they can talk i mean i'll watch a mr ed movie i'll watch mr ed sure (laughs) all all day all day (laughs) planet of the apes they talk man yeah brought it up i i I don't know i don't know planet of the apes is like they used to be apes though it's like i don't i just can't go there it's like the talking cars and cars there's certain conceits that i just reject uh one more, one small other bit of context, which is the special effects of Jurassic Park are worth talking about very briefly. Spielberg doesn't know how he's going to do it. He just, uh, Kathleen Kennedy is his right-hand woman at the time. She's his producer. He says, go figure this out for me, Kathleen. So she talks to all the best theme park people, all the best animatronics people, all the best robot people of the time, trying to figure out how are we going to do actual lifelike dinosaurs we have a steven spielberg budget we can finally do dinosaurs no one's ever really been able all the dinosaurs that we grew up with were ray harryhausen little animatronic claymation type stuff but we don't want that we want these dinosaurs to feel real so they go to stan winston the model maker who's responsible for things like the terminator movies and aliens the alien queen that uh, ripley fights with her power loader and that wonderful scene from aliens the Thing, The Predator, uh, responsible for a lot of those 80s classics. And he begins to build giant hydraulic dinosaur robots. 
And that's a lot of what you're seeing in this movie is, is robots. There's, there's very little CGI in this movie, actually. But we still need dinosaurs that can run and dinosaur robots, giant hydraulic dinosaur robots, like you build the set around them. And then you, if you need them to travel somewhere else, you tear that set down, build another one. It's like the T-Rex isn't mm-hmm. moving. He's a giant hydraulic robot, but we'll build a compound around him. And then when he's going to go somewhere else, we'll build something else. So we need dinosaurs that can run, that can move, that can be full body shots. And so we get Phil Tippett, who is the premier stop motion animator of the time. One of the first big things he did was the chess game and New Hope, the little, oh, yeah. let the wiki win that, that scene. He's also famous for the ATT walkers, for a lot of the animation and things like RoboCop. I think the ATT walkers are some of his best work because... ATAT. ATAT, yes, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Or ATST. It depends on which ones you want, the four-legged ones or the two-legged ones. The Hoth, the Battle of Hoth. He's responsible for the Battle of Hoth. He's a creator... ATSTs on indoor. Yes. He's a creator of something called Go Motion, which is... Jake, stop being a nerd. I want to explain Go Motion. <laughs> go Motion. Uh, things I learned in my 30s. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. So, so the, the problem with motion stop animation, like the old uh, Jason and the Argonauts style, is that we're taking still shots, which means it has no fluidity of motion. It doesn't have motion blur, basically. So Tippett tries to solve that, and he'll solve that by, like, when we take a photograph, we will shake the table a little bit or we will smudge the lens we'll do or these different the camera or just move the camera to make it look like there's motion blur mm-hmm. and he's pretty successful with the what are they called the walkers on at 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 walkers i used to know that as a kid the at and remember walkers but it's it's, it's never quite i mean you, you do still see the models uh-huh. seams there a little bit and spielberg doesn't want that for the dinosaurs but that's the best they've got so they're phil tippett's made the models he's already working he's got his team working on it and then dennis murin over at ilm is like hey steven can i show you a test little test of something george told me you're working on a thing yeah basically (laughs) well so this does go back to lucas coming off lucas has always been interested in computer animation since a new hope coming off of a new hope george lucas has all the money in the world and so for empire they actually do a cgi x-wing test for Empire Strikes Back. And it's actually pretty good. It proves that it's possible to do this, but it's so prohibitively expensive and complicated and still not quite there technologically that Lucas is, is like, all right, we can't build around CGI. But Lucas is excited about CGI. So Lucas hires a guy named Edwin Catmule from NYIT and later a guy named John Lasseter, you may have heard of. And they found the graphics group which is part of ILM, ILM being, if anybody doesn't know, Industrial Light and Mag- Magic, the special effects house that Lucas started for Star Wars. That graphics group was later sold to who in 1986 and Steve, rebranded as Steve, what? Steve Jobs. Yep. Pixar. Yep, exactly. So George Lucas founds a little thing that becomes Pixar, sells it to Steve Jobs in 86. They, they start their own journey that we've talked about and we'll, I'm mm-hmm. sure, talk about again resulting in Toy Story and all that. Meanwhile, ILM continues their own new computer graphics division with a guy named Dennis Murin, and they start to really do some stuff. They do the abyss with James Cameron with like movable water that forms itself into a face and stuff. Felt pretty cool at the time. I don't know if it holds up. They do Terminator 2, which felt awesome at the time. Probably holds up pretty well. Holds Um, up just fine because it's a good movie. Yeah, the liquid metal man 
uh, ro- evil robot dude that's fighting Arnold Schwarzenegger just felt like the coolest bad guy. And that's so that's 89, 91. And then in 93, Jurassic Park and Jurassic Park is the the actual because with the abyss, it's water with Terminator 2, it's liquid metal. It's like, can we actually do something photorealistic that looks like a real animal? That's the thing that Jurassic Park establishes. And of course, the rest is history. And the story, the famous anecdote is that Phil Tippett, the stop motion guy, is working to get the dinosaurs on their feet. Uh, Dennis Murin, the graphics guy, says to Steve, let me do a CGI test. So they see the test and they're just like, they all know they're seeing history be made. Like these, these are photo real dinosaurs walking around on this computer screen. That's amazing. And so Spielberg says to Tippett, hey, dude, I think you're out of a job. And Tippett says, don't you mean extinct? And that, of course, dialogue got put into the movie because mm-hmm. it was such a good line. And so Jurassic Park invent, it doesn't invent, but it showcases photorealistic CGI. It, it's, it, it basically says to filmmakers, hey, you can do whatever you want. And it says to a guy named George Lucas, hey, it's time now. You can make your, your Star Wars sequels. Yep. You can start gearing up for prequels. those. We prequels, yeah. You can make more Star A-T-A-T's Wars. Yeah. Prequels. You can make more. Jake, I don't know why you're being a nerd on this podcast. We really don't, we don't, really don't need nerd energy on this podcast, all right? Bring more of your jack energy. Please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me bring, let me, let me just inject, finish injecting some testosterone, then you say whatever you want. <laughs> So Jurassic Park gives us the uh, <laughs> CGI computer generated <laughs> graphics, <laughs> which leads to uh, George Lucas inventing CGI environments for the prequels and uh, Peter Jackson and Lord of the Rings and Marvel and blah, 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 the history. CGI becomes the thing, all thanks to Jurassic Park. And that is really all I want to say about, I mean, we could talk about like the casting of Jurassic Park, but who cares? <laughs> all thanks to George Lucas. All thanks to- It was to- Industrial Light and Magic, and even though Spielberg employed it in Jurassic Park, there was nothing like what Lucas did with the prequels. Well, like I said, Spielberg was gearing up for robots and uh, stop motion, and then ILM came to him and said, hey, Steve, can we show you a test? So Steven Spielberg gets a lot of credit, and deservedly so, but George Lucas is actually the guy that gave us modern cinema he just he just is the godfather of of everything george lucas far seeing technological visionary whatever else you want to say about his prowess he Mm -hmm. has been on the cutting edge of everything throw some respect on his name he's been so on the cutting edge that he gets to it before it's quite ready and then it looks a little dopey but he doesn't care that's what you love about him right Mm -hmm. or what i love about him so that is the history of Jurassic Park. Steven Spielberg has cast a bunch of indie actors that were like, he, he, I think he did reach out to Harrison Ford for Alan Grant and Ford just said, nah, I don't want to do this. What a, so that's an interesting different universe. <laughs> but we got Laura Dern who was coming off of David Lynch movies and things like that. And uh, Sam Neill who's a very respected Australian a- actor, but not particularly well known for anything outside of, I mean, I think most people to this day still know him for Jurassic Park primarily. Yep. Jeff Goldblum's arguably the biggest star in the cast. I mean, he was already well known as kind of a iconoclastic. He had already perfected his kind of jazzy delivery and his stuttering and his his, his mm-hmm. Goldblum act. Although he's only leaned into the the 
self-made mythology and character of it even more since since then you see interviews with him now and he's just like full-on dressed and playing the character of jeff goldblum i think there might have been a little humanity left in him back in the jurassic park yeah era but he's famous for things like the fly and uh, he's quite good in the invasion of the body snatchers remake which has some unfortunate sex scenes but other than that it's a pretty cool a scary sci-fi movie as i remember it although i've not seen it for years and years yep i've seen it i've seen both of those movies it's funny that i've seen the fly which is not the kind of thing i would watch yeah but i did it was a great movie can't recommend it at all yeah it's really gross as if you, if you like the the horrific experience of seeing a person realistically mutate into a fly uh, yeah don't then, recommend it uh, it's the movie for you so that brings us to actually discussing this film jurassic park what do you guys, how did you guys feel like it held up and what did you think of it? Big picture. Well, after watching Jaws and thinking about Jaws, it felt more like a collection of beats than a movie proper a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But for all that, it was still enjoyable. It was a collection of really well done beats. And once it gets moving, it's, it's a lot of fun. Laura Dern brings the most humanity <laughs> and the most sweetness. Yep. Um, notwithstanding that they're going to they're going to use her as a poster girl for some feminist talking points she actually gets to be like a vulnerable feminine woman who you care about and as much as you care about anyone in this movie <laughs> and that's kind of funny <laughs> i'd forgotten that she i i just forgotten how much i liked laura dern back in the day i liked her in that i liked her in um the october sky jake mm-hmm. Gyllenhaal movie she's very sweet very feminine well, when she wants to be yeah yeah uh, it's great She's become something that's completely different than that now. So you try to import it back and then you show up to Jurassic Park. And it's like, oh, here's this actually really sweet and fresh face, 20 something year old. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, the thing about Laura Dern, the irony of, of, of her brand of feminism, both then and now, is that it is so obedient. I don't know what a better word to use. Like, could you name a more submissive woman than Laura Dern? She just puts herself in the hands of a filmmaker like Steven Spielberg and says, use me however you want. I will be completely vulnerable to this silly dinosaur story. And then you see her in interviews and she's so excited about Steven did this. And, you know, it's like, you, huh, could, could, you name, could you name someone who's just more generous in a feminine way with themselves? Like, I'm, I'm just going to give, mm. I'm just going to be your vessel. Fill me up. Tell me what you want to do. And she's always been like that. I think she's still that way. Well, she it's, she is. I just saw her in that movie about the McDonald's guy, the founder. Yeah, where she's she's Michael Keaton's unloved, much put upon wife, and she plays a very sweet, submissive woman who is basically just emotionally abused by a, a jerk, and then cast off when he finds a shinier model to be his wife. Mm-hmm. And she just play. And like, I why would Laura Dern play this role? I don't get it. Isn't she like? Admiral Holdo, isn't that the only kind of thing that she does now? But the thing I'm saying is even Ad- Admiral Holdo is like, what do you want me to be, Ryan Johnson? Right, right. Make me your vessel for feminism and empowerment. It's just the yeah. irony of somebody like that and the weird ugliness of somebody like that and the beauty of some, the, the broken, the, the beautiful brokenness of somebody like that. It's weird. Is that it is all submissiveness somehow it's uh, use me marriage story guy use me spielberg use me david lynch i mean it's very 
sad kind of daddy issues. I'm not saying it's like I'm not I'm not I'm not saying that this brand of submissiveness is is something to aspire to. But but I think it would be wrong to say that's not what it is. I think that is what it is. It Markedly is, different than Carrie Fisher. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Carrie Fisher hates being in Star Wars, doesn't want to be there, makes sure that you know it. Is in the interviews mocks the whole process of being in Hollywood. You watch an interview, you watch an interview, you watch uh, Laura Dern's doing the rounds for Jurassic Park Dominion right now. You watch how excited she is to be back, to be part of it, to relive the adventure that she went through with Steven, all this stuff. It's, it's just like she is a zealot without a cause, just looking for powerful men to tell her what the cause is. Weird. So <sighs> that's what I think about Jurassic Park. Jake, what are your big thoughts on Jurassic Park? Really grateful the movie exists. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun without some of the more problematic things that you get in Jaws. Yeah. Like boobs and... Mm. Less gory than Jaws. Uh, Jurassic Park does have its gore. Less gory. It's got its gore, but it's less gory. It has its psychological moments, I guess, but nowhere on the scale of Jaws where you're actually forced to deal with some primordial... I think because kids love... A, kids love dinosaurs. B, kids know dinosaurs don't actually exist. There's just a... Jurassic Park can just exist on a more fun level, even when it's just scary and So gory. it just is and stays more fun. It's not trying to do more than that. It is, I think it's more cynical. Mm-hmm. One of the more cynical Steven Spielberg movies that is probably just this viewing, mm-hmm. but I just don't know that I've felt the level of cynicism. You could say maybe Close Encounters, but that was somebody who cared. Yeah, so the Close Encounters is like, he's not cynical about the movie. He's, he's very excited about making a cynical story. Exactly right. And you could say the same thing about something like... E.T.? Uh, no. Yeah. You know, the one with the girl and the TV and... Poltergeist. Poltergeist. Yeah. Thanks. Sheesh. <laughs> Jake was kept putting his hand out towards his laptop as if that was supposed to make us go, Poltergeist, yeah, of course. <laughs> but yeah, so there's a, there's a level of sort of like self-aware detached cynicism to it but at the same time i don't know it's just a fun movie he gets away with it because he's that good and and he's having real fun with a lot of it just the same and making sure it stays fun it is so it doesn't feel mean except that like you know the lawyer well and it's stuff that we don't care that much about or dennis who deserves it right some of that stuff, it feels like maybe his heart's not in some of the character stuff. But when we get to the big set pieces, it's like he did care about making the ultimate oh, yeah, T-Rex yeah, attack. Yeah. He did care yeah. about the raptors in the kitchen. Like, Absolutely. Yeah, those are amazing, wonderful scenes. They really and are. And then he punctuates the film with these other scenes that have as much fun and tension to them. And they don't have dinosaurs, whether it's... The car coming down the, the tree. The car coming down the tree yep. or the boy on the fence mm-hmm. or... Yep. Yeah, you know, there are a couple of scenes like that that just, it's like, I don't need dinosaurs to keep you invested and excited about what's going on on the screen, and which is also a money-saving device, but... Nobody's that good. You don't feel it. You, you feel like you get your... For you a movie that money. actually, if you count up dinosaurs' screen time, it's not a ton. And, and it's surprisingly small scale well, it in needs, its way. It yeah. needs to not be a ton because... The CGI really isn't there. And if it had been, like if he was as generous with dinosaur screen time as Lucas was with aliens and Gungans and whatever else, it would just look like trash. Right. But the fact that he understands when to use his his 
robots instead of his CGI. He limits the CGI to the to the Brachiosaurus and the in the Stampede, mm-hmm. more or less. Yeah, I mean, there's some shots, but mm-hmm. but but a lot of it's just done artfully. Like there is there are some a lot of there is a lot of CGI. <laughs> t-rex stuff in there but it's in the rain and it's in the dark and it's a little bit right. obscured and right. you just you can't hardly even tell it's mm-hmm. I, i'd say some of the cgi actually holds up better than shots in like the colin trevorrow jurassic park stuff where your brain is just always kind of aware oh yeah i'm watching cgi, CGI dinosaurs. Di- dinosaurs but here a lot a lot of the time you're just watching dinosaurs well and he blends it so much with the um, you may get like a wide shot of a CGI T-Rex in the in the dark and in the rain, but you're also going to get the robot smashing in the exactly the Jeep, and those are the things that you're gonna, that are going to live with you. And in your mind afterwards, you're going to put them all together. It, you're going to have a composite that feels more real, mm-hmm. and that's just part of the genius of how he understands how to how to create a, a tactile world with tactile dinosaurs in it well the tactile stuff is striking it's like so much of today's cgi it's just like everything is cgi in action but it's like if you can get a door handle turning if you can get a leg of lamb slamming against a window if you can get the pitter of rain on a window if you can get lights feeling like flashlights feeling like they would more the more things like that you can add in Mm -hmm the more you feel like you're connected as an audience member to the monster, to the, the CGI creation. Well, because you're connected to the kids in the, uh, underneath the Jeep and the rain and the mud and the, and the flashy light and the, the dark and the sounds and the, mm-hmm. yeah, it's actually evoking things that you've experienced and yeah. And feelings that you, maybe you've been in a car crash or, or you had a nightmare about a dinosaur or, any number of things that like, you, yeah, it's just pulling all of those things, pulling on all those threads and pulling them together for you in a way that really just lives. So my big p- picture thoughts are, it's a great movie. It's not, as it's not, uh, no, it's a fun movie. It's not a great movie mm-hmm. the way that Jaws is a great movie. Yeah, it, Jaws is a masterpiece of filmmaking. Jurassic Park is a masterpiece of fun cinema. It's the first time in a long time we've been, I've been watching something and thought, Oh, this is going to be fun to show to my kids when they're old enough. Right, right. And this is one of those movies, and that, that's exactly why I sat there thinking I'm grateful for this. Is like, I can show this to my older kids, and they will have fun with it. And, like, you don't lose much, you know, the wonder, the fun. And so much of what is great about it, too, is, like, the concept is great and sold so well mm-hmm. that you spend the whole first third of the movie wanting them to pull it off and dreading or... I sat there just dreading like, man, I don't want this to go to crap. You you almost want it to be a movie about a functioning dinosaur theme park Mm -hmm. where nothing happens. (laughs) Yeah. That's like what it's like, oh, I want grandpa Attenborough to be happy. And I want the, his dream of this should be for everybody. And the lawyers over there, like we could charge $10,000 a ticket. And he's like, no, the dinosaurs are for everybody. Like. I want that park. Like I want that that dreamer Disney guy behind it. Mm. I want all these characters to actually support this thing. It's on an island. They've got protections. Like they've got the whole leucine amino acid thing, and the they're only girls. And I don't actually believe the life finds a way of it all. I just want it to work. 
It's so funny that given who Spielberg was and where he was in his career and everything, it's so funny that his sympathy and therefore our sympathy goes toward the the showman that just wants to create a great attraction, but also feels the weight of other responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> what a character for to be our <laughs> the big emotional. Kind of, he gets the scene with the ice cream, talking yeah. about his flea circus and everything. Is like the, the only <laughs> the only time that the movie really spends with any real humanity. Because, frankly, I think the granted the kids stuff is pretty perfunctory. I think Spielberg cares about it, and I think it's well done. But he gets a lot out of those kids. He does. He does. Sure. He does. He's yeah, wonderful. They're, they're great. Arguably one of the great kid directors. I mean, he's just they're so naturalistic. Yeah, it's almost like they were real kids and not CGI. Yeah. Yeah. And robots. And not CGI. Yeah. <laughs> Stan well, we know the incredibly truth. naturalistic. <laughs> yeah, ILM was doing a great job there. <laughs> Yes, I I like this movie. I, I agree with what you guys are saying. It's it's it is a collection of scenes. It's not. It doesn't actually hold up as much of a story. But in terms of some wonder and some great action set pieces, and I think I was struck by how cartoonish some of the characters were, particularly the villains, the lawyer and the fat guy. <laughs> <laughs> He's so excited. <laughs> I love I love Dennis. <laughs> Yeah, uh, oh. <laughs> Dennis is awesome. He is a little much for me this time. <laughs> when he giggles as he puts uh, the whipped cream or whatever. And Shaving cream. Yeah! I, I, I love that. I think it's awesome. It was hilarious. Dodgson, Dodgson. <laughs> don't Nobody get cheap cares. on me, Dodgson. <laughs> yeah, don't get cheap on me, Dodgson. <laughs> the camera zooms down to the pie. <laughs> he hams it up and it and he's awesome and hams it up yeah it wouldn't look like that if you didn't ham it up what uh, a fat shaming very fat phobic movie i must say yeah his death scene is uh, actually hard to watch yeah i guess if you want to make an argument if you want to make an argument of for the for the character it's the fact that his sitcom silliness actually increases the <laughs> the terror and the weird kind of semi-tragedy of his death where he's just like He's like, I'm in a fun sitcom. And the dinosaur is like, no, you're not, dude. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to run over you and I get. (laughs) That's how all the dinosaur scenes, attack scenes feel in Crichton. That's like, they all have that that kind of, of that kind of mean kind of, you messed with nature and now nature's getting back. Yeah. Kind of. And me, Michael Crichton, I'm kind of happy about it. Like, you deserved it. You should have respected this. And the fact that you didn't means you, you're going to be torn apart. And I'm going to describe it for all my <laughs> listeners or readers, whatever they are. Good old Newman. So we talked about the opening scene. Newman, we talked about the opening scene. I don't think there's much else to say, is there? We all agree it's a little bit perfunctory compared to Jaws. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, I didn't feel that way as a kid, though. You got the Williams going, jungle music and then you've got the guys with the classic spielberg flashlights with lots of dust and stuff in the air you know the beams and the you've got cutting between the close-up of the of muldoon's eye and the raptor eye and yeah um it it seems pretty lame now pretty perfunctory and it feels a little cynical on spielberg's part but it didn't really play that way at the time so i'm not sure how to render objective judgment on it Uh, maybe it was just exactly what the movie needed but then you immediately go into some of the cartoony stuff with the lawyer is on the raft and he can't balance himself he's gonna bump (laughs) his head in the mine and (laughs) yeah it's pretty funny is it yes i don't know it's just like okay you want to make a cartoon it's all right i don't know well you feel spielberg's good instincts it's like 
his instincts is we need something interesting to be happening visually, and we want business for the characters to do. We want to bring this to life for people. And so maybe you can't balance, and maybe you bet it's, it's like everything that makes Spielberg great is even evident in the silliness of the lawyer. And, and yet it's like it would have been even better if somebody wrote something in the screenplay for the lawyer to play anything. I mean, he could still be a villain, he can still be a guy that's set up to die, but give him something some mm-hmm. the mayor in jaws was relatively nuanced and complex and uh-huh. interesting compared to this lawyer who's just like i'm gonna shut you down and oh we can make lots of money <laughs> <laughs> but i like they find that mosquito and the camera zooms in and we hear like the ah! i like that they find perfectly preserved mosquitoes in amber in huge in huge <laughs> chunks of amber it looks like indiana jones might as well walk in there it's like this temple with yeah. a little pedestal for the yeah <laughs> and, and, and we don't question it we don't think anything about it just it, it, the movie's well constructed and made enough that we're just like oh yeah of course of course you find mosquito amber things like that and they have perfect strands of dino dna mm, how many mosquitoes did they find yeah well, enough for, what, 37 species? Okay. Plus, they were able to bring back plants. And, and now we have the, the scene that dinosaur, actual dinosaur experts hate, which is where they're digging up a complete skeleton of a raptor, of, of a raptor that's intact, all in, intact all in one place, looks exactly like it's going to look in the movie, which is, for all you young paleontologists out there, never how this happens. We, we find a couple bones or, or what, like... They have to reconstruct these things, and oftentimes they famously figure out they reconstructed them wrong. But th- this movie has the the silliness of, and yet John Williams. We haven't even gotten to the John Williams themes, but he's still just like oh, music of wonder and myst- mm-hmm. mystery, and we're dusting off. And then we meet Sam Neill, and we meet Laura Dern, and uh, they learn all about their, the, the great characters, the great complex three-dimensional characters of Sam Neill and Laura Dern. I'm trying to think of one thing to say about who they are. Laura Dern is feminine and wants kids, and Sam Neill hates kids and likes to terrorize them, but he loves raptors. Right. It's funny how much Laura Dern doesn't get a character to play. She's really just there to to react to things with, to react, react to dinosaurs with wonder. And in this scene, she's going to be, oh, Alan. And mm-hmm. it's like, it's kind of cute that you're terrorizing this kid. But also, let's make babies. Let's make babies. Yeah. <clears throat> and then Sam Neill, I always thought he was pretty cool as a kid. Dr. Mm-hmm. Grant was like a cool hero. Oh, yeah. It's interesting watching him now. He comes off as so grumpy and he's actually very similar to the Roy Scheider character in Jaws. And they're both kind of very quiet and a little bit grumpy and they draw more energy in than they exude. And they're surrounded by all these characters that are very vibrant, but they're sort of just very still and underplayed. And I think it helps with a movie like this. It's like if, 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 if Dr. Grant, of all people, believes in a dinosaur, then I do too. Like, of course, Laura Dern's going to believe in this dinosaur. Of course, she's going to mm-hmm. fall for the special effects. But if Sam Neill falls for the special effects, then that's, that's really something. We've got the fat phobic, the fat shaming of this little kid. Lots of fat shaming in this movie, this disgusting <laughs> relic of... My favorite part of that whole story is that they kept inserting... A hawk or an eagle sound. sound. <laughs> yeah. 
You didn't you didn't notice that, Ben? Uh-uh. So, like, he makes a comment about how dinosaurs have more in common with birds or oh. birds of prey or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And he's like, sounds like an oversized a six-foot turkey, right? Mm-hmm. And then he comes up and he starts to tell the story right. with the raptor call. Right. And then they keep having, like, this hawk sound effect or this, like, bird of prey <laughs> eagle <laughs> screech in the background that punctuates, like, every time he has... And then it would stare at you. <laughs> it, even it would notice. attack you from the side it, but what you wouldn't know is that it'd have the hunting packs and the attack would come from the side <laughs> <laughs> so, or screech you know <laughs> it's just it's pretty funny that's pretty great that's great well and by the way for a, a movie that we've said isn't particularly deft in its characterizations or in its plotting compared to something like jaws what a great little moment we're developing the character of dr grant we're setting up the final villains of the movie the raptors and laying them in yeah we're just doing two or three things all at once and on top of that it works as its own entertaining little set piece we all want to see the bratty little fat kid get put in his place so have some respect have some respect you know alan if you wanted to scare that kid you could have just pulled a gun on him (laughs) I bet I could probably recite most of this movie. I, I suppose we should have said, I didn't ask for baggage, but I think all of our baggage is, we grew up with this movie and it was really cool and important and fun in our childhood or early teenagehood or whatever it was. I feel like I came to it a little late. I came to it late. Did you guys? Yeah. Well, I, as a teenager, but I wasn't allowed to see it in theaters. And then, so I saw it like on home video. I saw it on home video also, but I saw it right after it came out. Like okay. it was still... Everybody was talking about it. And no, it was one of those movies. It was just like, we didn't watch movies like that. And so I would have had to have been at a friend's house. Maybe I saw it at my mom's house. This would have been a place where I could have seen it if I wanted to. See, for us, this was one of those, like, we usually don't, but for Jurassic Park, we'll make the exception. Like, you're, you might be a little young for it and it might. And so this was just like the most exciting, probably one of the more violent things I'd seen to that point. Like it just, because I was younger, I was probably, what would I have been? I don't know, under 10, I guess, maybe. Hmm. If I was born in 85 and this movie came out, let's say I saw it in 94, maybe. So this was so exciting. I mean, I'm sure I would have said this was my favorite movie. And that goodwill lasted long enough that when Lost World came out, I thought Lost World was great because of course, how could it not be? And it took me a few years to realize, wait a second. I've never seen Lost World or whatever the third one is. I saw Jurassic the Chris Park Pratt three. ones. So I did see the Chris Pratt ones. I, I saw Lost World in the theaters. That was that was misfortunate. Lost World has one great sequence though. That trailer yeah. dangling dangling over the cliff. Yeah, it, that's a yeah. great. That's a great Spielberg sequence. It was. And the rest of it is terrible. All right, let's keep plugging through. So Richard Attenborough shows up. What do you guys think about Richard Attenborough? I've heard some people criticize, like, did he really have to be that twinkly and like uh, Santa he's Claus? cute and fun and I love it. It's part of the charm of the movie to me. I think so. Sure. I know my way around the kitchen. Yeah. Uh, I actually think he does a good job of playing both. I think, I think he actually does a, I think if, if any character is three-dimensional and multifaceted, it's, it's him. him. Yeah. Because back in the control room with Samuel L. Jackson, He's all business. He's pretty. Don't talk mm-hmm. to me about money. He's pretty curt. Yes. He's yeah. he's angry that things. And it's like, oh, okay, I get this guy. He's exactly. He's a showman. He is a Steve Jobs or a whoever. He's he's or a Walt Disney. I suppose is the inspiration. He's this guy that 
plays a Santa Claus that has sold himself as Santa Claus. That's his shtick. But he gets things done. But he gets things done and he's pretty ruthless with probably Dennis Nedry's complaint is has some basis in reality. And so he's both. I mean, he is. Well, and then he's like in the throes of the park is breaking down and his grandkids are still out there. He's like going to start rambling about how, okay, well, we've exposed some flaws here and now we know that, okay, we, we can't fully automate things. We've got to do this or that in order to, like, he can't give up that dream. Right. He's, even when. Even when his grandkids his are grand- out there still in danger, maybe dead. He's like problem solving the, well, lessons learned and this is only an opportunity to improve things and now we know how to make it even better and it's going to be great and Mm -hmm. that denial and just the ruthless always moving forward. And I think all that stuff plays beautifully alongside the hello, John, of it all. Like, I I think he's actually, I think those two components of his personality make perfect sense. He's this, he's the, all the contradictions of capitalism is what I'm sure are, you mm. know, people would say we now. We were saving that for a special occasion. Yeah. For today. Yeah. For today. Yeah. I assure you. <laughs> 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 Even that first scene, as, as grandfatherly as he is, you're watching him deftly railroad them with money. <laughs> I right. Mean, it's like, I, I see I, that my 50,000 or 500,000 has been put to use. And I think Attenborough plays that stuff pretty well. Research. He, he actually plays it like you could see this guy calculate. He's not just bumbling into right. reminding them of what they owe him. He's he, he, no, he's good. He he yeah. pretends not. She comes in. Who's the jerk? Like, and, and he just doesn't notice. But that's part of his act. Like, that's of course, right. he noticed exactly that she did that. And now he's playing with that. Like, he's pretty savvy, actually. But also the grandfatherliness is real. And, and Lord Attenborough, I mean, he was a lord. like you get somebody with that level of dignity and actorly sort of the filmmaker who made the, the guy who directed shadowlands right Alas. yes yeah and gandhi and all kinds of chaplin things. chaplin uh, which i've never seen and here wasn't very good but, it was not very good but yeah he knows his way around the kitchen i guess we already talked about dennis nedry that's the next big scene he meets dodgson <laughs> he's giggling and <laughs> wearing a ridiculous <laughs> like a school boy <laughs> <laughs> wearing a ridiculous hawaiian shirt and it's just like <laughs> i love it yeah i love everything too. about it it's yeah. so sick it's such a wonderful uh, colorful scene I, yeah I'm me all, too i'm all behind it oh yeah. maybe he loves the whipped cream he laughs and puts it on his giant piece of pumpkin pie and that's it's shaving, shaving cream shaving. And he puts it on somebody else's pumpkin pie oh, it was it was his it was his. he had a giant table of food that it was half eaten okay it was just like how he eats every night yeah. <laughs> He's like, I'm not going to eat this pie anyway. Here's put the shaving yeah. cream on it. <laughs> Don't get cheap on me. And Dodson is like <laughs> such a TV actor of like everything about the scene just feels like it's out of another But movie. he's like mocking I him. I loved it. For it too. Yeah, yeah. Dodson, Dodson, nice hat. <laughs> it is funny. Would you think you're a spy? <laughs> yeah. It is funny. It is funny. It just feels like it's from, grant me this. Can you imagine the Jaws level version of all this corporate esp- espionage. Can you imagine this plot played just a little bit straighter and, and and the fact that it might actually be pretty exciting and interesting and maybe not. Maybe maybe the sitcom I, I version is, is the best version. And interesting. Uh, he's so silly though. I, I think some levels of corporate espionage are that way. And I think that the kind of You just of find the goofball that has a chip on his shoulder. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's a fair argument. 
I mean, Samuel L. Jackson's not going to no. betray the company. No, he's not. Muldoon's not going to. Nope. <laughs> Apparently, the three of them run the park <laughs> all by themselves. <laughs> but but Dennis. Yeah. Dennis is the kind of guy who is thinks of himself small, as very affable and generous, and and the smartest one in the room. And he's not. He's very good at what he does. But he thinks way more highly of himself than he ought to. Bill basically he, thinks he built Jurassic Park. Yep, and everyone owes him everything, and he's got the drop on everybody, and he's he's the competent one in the room, while everyone is sort of like check the vending machines. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You've, you've, I think I'm coming around. You made a good argument, Nendry. He's inevitable for the inevitable. <laughs> yes. He is inevitable. <laughs> he's not Iron Man. That's for sure. Okay, yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, the scene where he, I, I don't ask that people apologize for their mistakes, but I do ask for the, that stuff's all pretty realistic and yeah, painful. I, I ask that they pay for them. I do ask that they pay for them. Um, all right. Well, now we're getting to the other iconic character from this, this movie, which is the, we're, we're on the helicopter ride and we're meeting Ian Malcolm, rock star, chaos. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, Dr. Uh, Sattler, I believe, refuse to believe. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like now, if you made the movie, we believe in the ascendancy of nerds. Like, nerds have won. And so you could just play that character as a nerd and he would be cool. But, yeah, what, but, you, what you do is you cast somebody super handsome and just put glasses on him. Well, I'm picturing like Ben Wishaw from the Bond movies or, or, or some, somebody like that, kind of. But like, like you could just straight up cast a cool nerd to play the character back then it's like oh we have to make a nerd cool so what do we do i guess we give him a leather jacket and uh, sunglasses and yep. uh give him all the best lines and but and some of that's goldblum apparently goldblum wanted the jacket and goldblum brings a lot and man he was a fan favorite i remember loving, oh, yeah, loving that yeah. character as absolutely a kid. ian malcolm just seemed like definitely cool really cool I will say a lot, a lot of the one-liners in this movie graded on me, not in the early going, but once we get to the dinosaur stuff and th- every scene has to be punctured with like, well, we got back in the car or you think they'll include that on the tour? Like I'm, just, I'm so sort of worn out by Marvel and stuff like that. that but it didn't feel that way at the time. No, it didn't that's at all. Sure. That's, that's where I was going is all those things, A, felt necessary because the suspense level was so high. Yeah, that that's right. You needed the relief of them. Yep. And, and B, we just weren't so hit over the head with Joss Whedon stuff. <laughs> Post-Whedon. <Yeah>. Malaise. <laughs> Post-Whedon malaise, yes. <laughs> I love Sam Neill in the helicopter. He plays such a good, like here's this other guy that's being charming and funny to my girlfriend and I'm, I'm annoyed by it. Like, and also I feel really incompetent with all this stuff with like the, the, I can't figure out how to put a seatbelt together, which has no symbolic anything right, yeah. whatsoever. There's nothing symbolic about the fact that he can't figure out how to put the seatbelt together mm-hmm. and which ends go where. Yep. Yep. Everybody else can all the characters that are currently confident in their masculinity. Yeah, I like the little smile, though, after he ties them together. It's just like the the perfect, I'm the unfunny, uncharming person right now, but I just found something to do that's kind of funny and charming. And But also, I have a chip on my shoulder about the fact that Jeff Goldblum's even here. Laura Dern playing such a bimbo in that scene, laughing at all of uh, stupid 
Malcolm's innu- innuendo and mm-hmm. you know I refuse to believe that you're not acquainted with the concept of attraction <laughs> 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 what woman <laughs> goes for that an idiot <laughs> uh, yeah I, confidence will get you a lot I diff I mean to be fair confidence will get you I mean what woman goes for I think never mind <laughs> I, I basically won my wife on a stream of that kind of crap. That's what I was going to... And maintain her to that this day. <laughs> I was going to maybe point that out. Yeah, well, yeah. that's what I, It's I, confidence. Confidence goes a long way. Confidence. You, you can sell it. Ha <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, you... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like it. You buy it because Ian Malcolm is like someone from old Hollywood. No matter what you said, he could say something back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's so... He's, he believes in himself so much that he doesn't give you... It, 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 it's almost unsociable, like, to not accept him, to not accept his, like, what are you going to do? Everybody's getting to know each other, and we all are supposed to be playing nice together, and he's just confident and aggressive, and you have two choices. One is to hard know it mm-hmm. and put a big stink in the room, and the other is to roll with it. Yeah, it really and, is. And guys, guys can do that. Yeah, every, there's so many characters that are asked to play that, like Benedict Cumberbatch and the Marvel things is kind of asked to play that. But it's striking when you see someone who actually can really bring that energy. And Jeff Goldblum in that era is one of them. Obviously, Robert Downey Jr. is the modern patron saint of that kind of shtick. Mm-hmm. But in both of those cases, those guys actually could do it. Like you realize Robert Downey Jr. could come out into the room, insult you, make you feel bad about yourself, and you'd completely roll with it because he's robert downey jr he just alphaed you that's what happened right he what he alphaed you right yeah but sideways alphaing is a, is its own art and yeah those guys are good at it john williams now with the theme with the march whatever it is dun, 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 dun. science is so cool yeah man what we're on the approach now nowadays we're lucky if movies have one theme this movie has Two iconic themes. It's yeah. got the little Jurassic Park lullaby. Da, 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 da. And then it's got this awesome heroes theme for the island. Man, it adds so much. Yep. It adds to a simple helicopter approaching an island. Mm-hmm. Like it's. Well, it, yeah, it adds tension and hope. And you called it a hymn, yeah, hymn to science before yeah, we started. Right. Yeah, it's a hymn to the church. It really of is. It really is an- anthemic yeah. in that way. It's just like. It, 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 if you. Th- if you think of it that way, it really does encapsulate the best of church music in that sense of like transcendence and awe and wonder mm. and yeah, with sweetness too and that like lullaby, which he's going to come back to um, yeah, like when they're in the tree and he's going to use whatever the- The branch. The, and the, the bell tones, like yeah. the xylophone or whatever, like the, whatever you call that. Ding, 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 all yeah. that, yeah. But yeah, it is a hymn to the Church of Science. That's the way to think about this this theme, I think. Well, it's so powerful that I think it actually front load, or what, what's the word? It makes the argument moot. Like the fact that the movie ostensibly is against the Church of Science, I guess, that theme wins the argument before the arguments for science. Before the, before, by the time they're talking about like, ah, should we really have brought dinosaurs? We as an audience are so We're firmly- We're all in. Like we, this is We're great. So they're approaching it and they're approaching the island. You have that theme and then you get there and then you finally get the Brachiosaurus mm. reveal. And then you get that, the, the, what you call the lullaby. Mm-hmm. 
coming in and it's like at that point in the movie, you share everyone's awe and wonder. You are sold, you're a believer in the Church of Science and you want Jurassic Park to work. It mm-hmm. is so cool. It is such a wonderful thing. I can't believe that it, and, and like you said earlier in the show, that that Sam Neill gives us wonder mm-hmm. and uh, it has his breath taken away by it. So he can't speak. He just has to turn Laura Dern's head. Right. Like it really, really sells it all. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we have a T-Rex. <laughs> we have a T-Rex. <laughs> you, you have a T-Rex? We have a T-Rex. Beautiful and cool and exciting and fun. And really sets up the, man, I just don't want, I don't want it to, I don't want it to go bad. Why does, and it makes you hate Dennis Landry. <laughs> Dennis Landry, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the movie wants to have its cake and eat it too. It does want you to think, these idiot scientists, what have they done? But also, ah, it's all worth it. Yeah, yeah, some of the coolest people got eaten by dinosaurs and that kind of sucks. And But it's all worth it. Well, and if, if uh, it's not the coolest people, though, if a lawyer and a fat no, 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 I mean like uh, Muldoon and Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, th- that's too bad. They were the coolest, yeah, um, basically. Yeah, but, I mean Samuel L. Jackson can talk with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and say, "Hold on to your butts" over and over again. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. It was as a kid. It was cool. It was still it was cool, cool in this movie. I was like, man, I want, I want like a movie with this character. Having <laughs> adventures in Jurassic Park gone wrong. I just want to see Samuel L. Jackson walking around with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah, like really compelling. What's his name? Oh, Mr. Arnold. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, oh, Mr. Mr. Arnold. Arnold. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's jumping ahead to when he like, it's, I feel like it's three or four Laura Dern jump scares in a row and they mm-hmm. all land. They all and land, like, yeah. How did you do that? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, 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 it's pretty amazing. It's amazing. The big brachiosaur, is that the name of the creature? Pretty sure. Yeah. We had a correction at some point. It wasn't brontosaurus. It was brachiosaurus. Right. I think we called it a brontosaurus back then. I think maybe the science has changed. They corrected it in the movie. Oh, do they? Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. I guess it is worth saying for people who don't know, most, most of our listeners maybe have just grown up downstream of Jurassic Park. Like, this movie really changed the public's imagination for like you watch old dinosaur things and they're always these lumbering lizard like creatures. Mm-hmm. And, and this movie really turned them into fast, predatory, bird like, still reptilian, just a different kind of monster, though. And I actually remember being aware of that, like a- as a little kid watching this movie. Oh, these dinosaurs are much faster and more agile and more. Mm-hmm. smart than especially the raptors which were just the rock stars of this movie man i was in love with velociraptors when i was oh yeah yeah well, they took the place of the t-rex as the coolest dinosaur well i remember i remember i was really annoyed actually with i just remember being really annoyed but the movie rectifies it because the the t-rex busts yes, up but at the end no, no but that's not what i was annoyed with as a kid I, what i was annoyed with was all the kids on the playground running around talking about velociraptors. It's like... You would have been annoyed with me because I, velociraptor, I, I literally had a poster of velociraptors in my room. It said, you are what I eat. I still remember <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, and I would have been annoyed with you. Like, dude, T-Rex is still the king of the dinosaurs. I don't care what happened in Jurassic Park. Like, 
Veloc- you wouldn't know that a Velociraptor existed if it wasn't for Jurassic Park. So just shut up. For Jurassic Park happened, and I do know that they exist. You, and they're yeah. So cool. Well, how many dinosaur books had you read before you, you watched? A lot. And then you read about Velociraptors, and the movie doesn't even particularly get them right, unfortunately. But well, you you guys both would have been annoyed at me because I had a thing that I could still do, which is walk around like a raptor, making raptor noises, and then with you, without using my hands, I could jump up on a counter as tall or taller than these tables we're sitting at. And I would do that in the kitchen and like scare my mom and sister. It was a really fun act. I haven't done it in a while. Maybe I'll do it next time I'm at your house, Jake. We'll see. Uh, we'll see. That sounds yeah. great. That sounds great. Yeah. Maybe that can be a Patreon reward. <laughs> a Patreon reward. Yes. I'm going to bust out yes. my shotgun and... <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this act is going to make us a lot of money. Or, or I'm going to throw you in the freezer and... <laughs> in the freezer. Now, if I can, yeah, throw you in the freezer. (laughs) (laughs) Now, has Ben learned how to turn doorknobs, though? It's an important piece of information to know. I've never seen him do it. (laughs) If I may throw my film critic hat on for a minute, my decoupling meaning hat on, I want to read something that Roger Ebert said in his review of King Kong that I actually think makes a pretty good point about what this what's happening with Jurassic Park with the CGI and with the Brachiosaur scene in particular, like how it changed our imaginations. So, so Spielberg's talking about King Kong and he says the very artificiality of some of the special effects or in the very artificiality of some of the special effects, there's a creepiness that isn't there in today's slick, flawless computer aided images. In Jurassic Park, you are looking more or less at a real dinosaur. In King Kong, you were looking at an idea of a dinosaur created by, by hand by technicians who are working with their imagination. When Kong battles the large, flesh-eating dinosaur in the first big battle scene, there's a moment where he forces its jaws apart and the bones crack and blood drips from the gaping throat, and something immediate happens that is hard to duplicate on any computer. End of quote. I do think in Jurassic Park, as wonderful as it is and as much as it conjures an idea of wonder, it is the beginning of something that happened in cinema, which is the triumph of literalism, the death of visual metaphor. Like if you think about the old Tim Burton Batman movies, which are pre-Jurassic Park, both of them, I think, they, they both are so artificial. It's not a real Gotham City. It's just Tim Burton's crazy idea of what Gotham City mm-hmm. would be. And, and we got so much more of that sort of thing, even in our popular filmmaking. And I think in the post-CGI, Marvel-dominated world, Peter Jackson-dominated, that whole style of filmmaking, like, there is so little room for bold visual metaphor. We're just going to put a real dinosaur on the screen. We're not going to put the idea of a dinosaur on the screen, if that makes any sense. Even something like Matt Reeves' Batman his Gotham isn't that evocative. Like there's evocative shots. It's very cool, but it's not the same kind of imagination triggering Gotham that Tim Burton was putting his Batman in. The Chris Nolan Batman, everybody's favorite Batman just happens in Chicago and it just looks like Chicago. Yeah, but Snyder is stylized. Yeah, Snyder. It's one of the reasons why I, as dumb and bro and everything as Snyder is, as aggro as Snyder is, I do respect his filmmaking prowess. He is one of the last gasps of just pure stylization Mm -hmm. that you really see 
And I think it's a shame because his movies are so dark and violent. You wouldn't want to show them to any kid. But if you wanted to trigger a kid's imagination as far as like, Mm. this is Superman. Snyder is the current filmmaker who comes the closest to, or this is Batman. This is the idea of Batman. I want you to go imagine your own Batman. I want to do things where they're not even strictly realistic, but they make you think about what it would be like to be a Batman. Snyder's the person that's doing that. Like Lord of the Rings is a perfect example. The the ring wraiths in Lord of the Rings are a perfect example. They're so thuddingly literal. It's just guys in black coats yeah, on I horses. Spider Man into the Spider Verse. Yeah, Spider Man into the Spider Verse. The more distance we get, the more I'm like, yeah, it's genius. Because what's up danger is evoking the idea in a bold, visually metaphorical way of what it would be like to fly through the jungle of the city. Yeah. And just putting it upside down and all this stuff, it's it's not giving you the literal, this is what it would look like if Spider-Man was flying. It's giving you the idea, the platonic ideal of what it would be like if Spider-Man was flying. And, and that is why- and that, It sparks your imagination. Right. And, and that's the difference between that take on Spider-Man and the John Watts take on Spider-Man, especially his latest one. Right. Which is like- if my kids come out of a movie that has three Spider-Man characters in it and they're not trying to flip off the side of walls, mm-hmm. you have failed. Right. You've yeah. not inspired them. What would it be like? You've not inspired them with the idea of Spider-Man. Right. And what it would be like to be Spider-Man. You've shown them three Spider-Men. Right. And that's it. That is all you've done. You've actually maybe taken something away because you're like, that's well, right. this is what it would look like. I mean, I think even the best of the Avengers stuff is can be like that. Like, when you think about the portal scene, it's great and everything. When you think about what, what happens in your imagination, when you imagine the superhero battle to end all superhero battles where all the superheroes are fighting the biggest villain and we need to get them all because he's so bad. And then you compare it to what sort of happens in the, the portal scene. It's fine. It's good. Well, it makes an argument for never actually, I mean... Not that this is what you actually want, right. but it makes an argument for never actually realizing those scenes. Yeah. I, never actually making them. Like you talking that way reminds me of being a kid and my parents are still together and having all my action figures, yeah. right? Like whether it was all my G.I. Joe action figures or whether it was all my Superman, Batman stuff, whatever it was, I was making those battles. That was what I played. It was all the what ifs and what if did my G.I. Joes and Superman and what if like I had my like that's what kids do or it seemed like the most natural thing in the world with action figures is like my multiverse crossover event of my own mm-hmm. would never have framed it that way but like wouldn't it be cool if and mm-hmm. how it, what would happen if yeah isn't it weird how little of that energy Avengers Endgame actually has that that wonder of just like I mean, it does have some. I'm not arguing it's completely devoid of that. But when you think about how exciting it was as a five-year-old to have all your action figures, yeah, and then you think about how a scene like that should evoke those feelings, and some of it's just being an adult, of course. But I think there has been this weird, I guess my phrase is the triumph of literalism, where it's just like, we're not just going to ask the question of what it would be like to have all the superheroes together. We're also just going to answer it. And that sort of actually takes away from the wonder a little bit. You could argue, okay, so just never do anything. <laughs> Leave it in people's heads. That's not right. I mean, obviously, we want to see these things, but Spielberg at the height of his craft actually could show you E.T. 
have E.T. do these iconic things like ride a bicycle past the moon. And it conjures up this whole world of imagination where you're like, I wonder what E.T.'s planet is like. Mm -hmm. I wonder what else E.T. can do. Like, I want to get my E.T. doll and go make up other cool E.T. things because of the artful way that you've shown me what your little dorky E.T. animatronic thing or whatever it was can do. You compare that to Iron Man or something. It's like, well, there he is. We know he can do this and this and this and this. And the other place that this becomes really obvious is Star Wars, Mm -hmm. where how little does Luke Skywalker do and how much does he spark your imagination? Well, and here's the- So you've got that, Yeah. right? Then you have, now we have cool CGI effects and stuff, and we can make the Jedi do all kinds of crazy cool things that you imagined. And it still sparks your imagination and leaves you wanting more. Mm-hmm. And then you get to... The sequels. Then you get to Rey and Kylo Ren, and you're just like, of all the things that you could do and come up with, how is it? How is it that you leave me with so little? Well, there's so many answers for that. I mean, some of it's just the snake eating its tail. It's that new Star Wars is only just evoking old Star Wars, whereas old Star Wars is invoking like, oh, those stormtroopers remind me of images of Nuremberg and Nazis, and we're drawing on all this stuff. But then you have the Rogue One hallway scene, Vader hallway scene. Yeah. And then you have the Mandalorian Luke hallway scene. And you have all the stuff that they do in the animated shows, where it's like, no, this stuff is still cool, and there are still things to explore and spark the imagination. You just have lost it, and you lost the plot in the places where it matters most. You lost the plot, and, and I think we just have a dearth of, you know, Werner Herzog, the great pretentious filmmaker, said, we are starved for images. We are starved for new images in our society. And the first time I heard that, I was like, what? What do you mean we're starved for new? We're saturated with new images. That's all we have. But I, but I actually, uh, the older I get, the more I sort of understand. Like, we're starved. Like, when's the last time we actually saw E.T. go by the, by the moon? We have all the special effects budget in the world, but when's the last time we got something iconic? When's the last time we got something that's just going to stick with us, that you want to buy the poster? You, it triggers your imagination. It makes you wonder what else is out there. Top po- Gun Maverick. Well, Top Gun Maverick. It's, it's finally going to answer all these questions. <laughs> this was the time, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, it's like not only are we a post-literate society, not only are we a post-words society, but we've actually lost the ability for our images to have metaphor, for our images to speak and to have their own literary associations to them. It's like our, our, our words died and now our images are dying. And that's a weird place to be. And I think Jurassic Park is a, is a good movie and it is full of wonder and the Brachiosaurus scene is wondrous. But it is kind of a signpost on the way to <laughs> the ruin of all civilization as we amuse ourselves to death. Hashtag Neil Postman. Hashtag like, Marshall McLuhan. Um, Hashtag. Yeah. Uh, Merida. Uh, the medium is the message. <laughs> Turtles did, all the way down. Did you Turtles guys the know the medium is the message? Yeah, Derrida. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag death of the author. Hashtag buzzwords that people don't know what they mean so i don't know as i as i was thinking about this i thought about this is a leap i understand there's i don't have an exact connection but it's just like people used to be so much more tangibly i think i think i've tracked that kids especially used to be so much more tangibly in relationship in dialogue with their action figures 
or, or even with the Bible. Well, like, here's here's the thing. Yeah. My kids don't actually have action figures. Right, exactly. Why would they? Yeah. I, I was thinking about... They have costumes. Yeah. Yeah, it's not that kids... It's not that imagination has died. It's not that they've rewritten the DNA of humans and the way God made us so much that we suddenly lack all capacity. They also have the universal stick. Right. Yeah, well, oh, exactly. Yeah. The universal stick. If they're bad, Jake gets out the universal <laughs> stick. <laughs> You're <laughs> in a universe of pain with my stick. Jake always uses a dirty, hairy voice when he has to do any discipline. What was I saying? Oh, I don't know. Just everything's terrible. Imagination is dead. Oh, I was just, I was going to say the relationship that people used to have to Bible characters. You talk to an old school Bible nerd and they're excited about King David almost as if he's like a guy that they knew or something. And they're excited about Bible facts and. There's just a certain kind of Bible nerdery that a previous generation of maybe 40 years ago, you still see that. You don't encounter that as much anymore. And I wonder if part of that is, A, the death of our associative metaphorical relationship with words, but also it's indicative of... There were Bible images from comic books and from Sunday school materials that have stuck with me and have defined those characters for me, maybe in a bad way, maybe in a good way, but... I had a relationship with those images and with those words imaginatively that I I just don't feel like this generation has. And I throw it out there, dear listener, for you to ponder. Anything else to say about the Brachiosaur scene before we move on? Mm -mm. We have a T-Rex. They do have a T-Rex. We established that. And then we have this wonderful cartoon that gives us all the exposition. What a masterstroke of an exposition dump. But we have staff and merched out Jeeps all the way. Yep. Yeah. Everybody's wearing their Jurassic Park hats and those guys in their dorky pink polos and Jurassic Park hats. And then we have the Raptor birth, which is Spielberg at his most Spielbergy menace combined with something sentimental, kind of a birth scene. And mm. just the way that scene is choreographed, you watch, watch it again, watch Sam Neill retreat into shadow as he, into, I don't know where the shadow is coming from, but somehow... He retreats into shadow and his face Hmm. is almost completely covered in shadow as he realizes this is a velociraptor. Spielberg, he's a good filmmaker. He uses light and shadow and things like that to tell his story. Um, And it's very expressionistic, actually. It doesn't make any sense where are these shadows coming from, but but it's subtle enough that you don't, it doesn't feel like Zack Snyder or something. It's not super stylized, but... Uh, it's like he's going to take a step back and suddenly his face is in shadow. And he's going to say, we've clocked the raptors at 40 miles per hour. You have raptors. Hmm. The the movie's telling us, oh, that thing that he talked to, to the stupid fat kid who was dumb because he was fat. They've got those and it's scary. Then we're going to see the raptors eat. We're going to see that broken harness. And we're just doing so much to set up. This movie actually is setting up these these characters in your mind. It's doing what Jaws did where we, we create so much of the monster in your mind before we ever see him. And so we're seeing the raptor. We see the raptors. They, they break that harness. They eat that cow, which is funny because that doesn't even really exactly track with who we've... The, the whole thing with the raptors is that they're smart and they're calculating. And yet when we want to build a little suspense for them, we kind of treat them like uh-huh. land piranhas, which isn't ultimately how the raptors turn out to be, but it's still good. Raptors are scary. It, it accomplishes mm-hmm. nothing besides raptors are scary. Then we're going to have dinner in a ridiculous, I don't know what that room is. A we're, weird shadowy room with weird, all kinds of videos going. and yeah. yeah. It's like a museum of modern art kind of right. room that you'd right. sit. I don't know why you'd want to have dinner there. And it's not 
TV screens, it's projectors, so lights being cast That's across. That's right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. It's basically just a room that you would design for a giant philosophic discussion of That's man right. versus science and him and propagandizing. Yeah, his yeah. Guests. I, I think it works. Yeah. And this is where I'm not sure I actually buy that anyone but Malcolm would be poo pooing this whole thing. I mean, they just saw a dinosaur and they're all just like. <clears throat> Uh, well, uh, science is, we shouldn't be arrogant with our science. But he does get the, <clears throat> I think the best case he can make is he gets all the good lines mm-hmm. and he is believable that that's his position. And he sort of feels that way the whole way through. Like he's not going to be the one who jumps out of the, out of the thing. He's sort of like, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the scene, he gets all the good lines and you have these sensible scientists there and maybe enough of the wonder is rubbed off that they're able to be persuaded a little bit at least on a philosophical level if not emotional level to at least press the pause button yeah that's at least the best argument you can make for it yeah i mean i never questioned it before this viewing but this this viewing i was like they're all right like i agree with them Mm -hmm. and yet Mm -hmm. they've just been presented with this mind-blowing thing like maybe a little bit more residual just oh right hmm. yeah it's all well played it's probably the the best humans talking scene in the movie i mean it doesn't have much competition but life uh finds a way yeah it's always funny that malcolm actually says that line because it lives in the in my imagination at least as a john hammond line i think he says it in some of the sequels or, he says it in lost world yeah yeah and they've kind of make him say it again and they, they use the audio clip or something in mm. some trailers and then the chris pratt genius movies mm-hmm. of awesomeness <laughs> but Gennaro, he wants to have that coupon day <laughs> <laughs> well that's his concession to hammond's populist idea of the park and you want can we at least agree that it's too cartoony when he says we're gonna make a fortune with this place (laughs) as he's presented with a real life dinosaur i don't know i the whole movie likes it likes its cartoon nature so much it Mm. just uh, it blends in i'm not sure what to say you know the other thing that i think i I always resent this about the steven spielberg's whole school of filmmakers is they're always like ah capitalism it's like you guys are the most successful capitalists in the world, uh, you are the person who's making a fortune off this place. Well, you're literally what I think, making a fortune off this movie, and you're going to punish the guy who wants to make money. But I, that's what I think when I when I said earlier at the top that this feels cynical and self aware. It's like, yeah, I think that I think that Gennaro is Spielberg. Like, I think this is how he feels about the movie. He wants and about to himself. He wants, he wants to think to, he's Hammond. Yeah, but also. Yeah, but also he, he understands he's his his id is Gennaro. I think so. Yeah, so he wants to see himself as Hammond. I just want to give the world a great time, but I, and I rushed into this, and now I'm stuck in the monster that I hate. Mm-hmm. And so, you want merch? I got merch. You want dinosaur toys? I got dinosaur toys. You want the hats? You want the the action figures? You want the jeeps? You want the things? I got all the things. I know that this is going to be a thing forever. And we're going to make a fortune off this and we deserve to get eaten on the toilet. Um, I, I think that's but, a... but, but also I do want to give people a fun time and I do want to give people the wonder and also, and so I'm stuck. And so. I, I like that read, but I also, I still think 
if he's if Gennaro's is it and he's punishing him, it's it's in poor taste to be that self hating. Actually, like sure, actually, you as a three dimensional humanist filmmaker, you should actually have some pity on the bad side of yourself too, which he kind of does with Hammond. He kind of does with Gennaro. No, with Hammond. Yeah, I mean, with Gennaro, it's like, I think this was a piece of Gennaro. Like, <laughs> yep. Nobody cares about Gennaro. I think this was too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. And she's kind of grossed out because it's gory, but not because anyone's sad about Gennaro, Gennaro the blood-sucking lawyer. Goldblum's speech is great. Lack We've, of humility before nature on display here staggers me. It staggers me, yeah. And Gold, Goldblum does make great jazz out of discovery the, is penetration what yeah. you call discovery i call rape of the mod of the natural world but you look at that Cut one to laura dern right yeah well but but also think about that line on the script page and then think about what what you call penetration i call the rape of the natural world. like just the what i didn't i didn't discovery i didn't quite do it uh, yeah what you call penet- what you call discovery i call uh the rape of the natural world as he's just like none of those deliveries are what you'd expect based on that's right because uh, goldblum's a genius i mean he's well-trod territory now but he is great at that kind of stuff so there's that scene and then we meet the kids what do you think about these kids ben they're fun <clears throat> like cartoon kids they're fun fun cartoon kids yeah. i'm a dinosaur nerd and you hate me because you inexplicably hate all kids even the ones that you Read should your obviously book. like yeah right what, what adult wouldn't be charmed by that kid for at least a little bit. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And then Lex has the two character traits, which is number one, she's a computer nerd, mm-hmm. hacker. hacker. And number two, she has a bit of a pre-adolescent crush on old Dr. Grant, perhaps. But I think that's about everything we know about. Mm-hmm. We've just named all the everything. Yep. But Spielberg's so good with the kids and they're so natural. And kids love dinosaurs. You need kids in a dinosaur movie. Usually I hate Robin syndrome, what I call Robin syndrome, where you bring in a Robin because the audience doesn't see themselves as Batman. So let's bring in a lame character for kids to identify with. But for a dinosaur movie, kids love dinosaurs. And so we need some kids here to feel the wonder. We can't just have a bunch of scientists talking about the rape of the natural world. We need kids who are just excited to see dinosaurs and who would feel the same level of wonder and terror that we would feel actually on a visceral level even as adults right yeah exactly because you have the even the adults seeing this movie for the first time it's tapping into their inner child and the terror and the horror of it yeah I think kids are a great avatar for everything. It's, it's nice to have a paleontologist and a paleobotanist for the plot, but you really need kids a to... A paleobotanist who is also somehow a nurse and a doctor and whatever else she, she needs. Like she administers morphine oh, and yeah. she... She's just hyper-competent. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. women inherits the earth. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> it's, also, it's also fun to have kids who pretty much aren't brats. Yeah. That's, it, that was fun. It's like, oh, yeah. I liked these kids. Yeah, they're not. They didn't like stow away or like no. they're they're actually supposed to be there. Right. There's not like a bunch of annoying stuff about the divorce or anything like that. It's just yeah. There's yeah, just pretty good kids. Yeah, much better than the Jurassic World kids who are total brats. Uh, yeah, and zeros. And zeros. Yeah, just not interesting at all. Yeah. And then all right, we're gonna go on the tour. And we're not going to see any dinosaur. Uh, will there be dinosaurs on this dinosaur? I just love how long this movie 
what what a master class in anticipation and payoff and set off. Like we're going to give you some payoff early. Like it doesn't take very long to get to the Brachiosaur, but it takes a long time to get to what you really want to see, which is that T-Rex. And we're going to tease like you're about to see it and then you're not. And we're going to go past the T-Rex paddock and we're going to try and lure it out. Like just the more time you spend not seeing the T-Rex. Oh, we're going to tell you about another nasty predator dinosaur that spits venom in its eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to be like, ugh. I wonder wonder if we're going to see that in the movie. (laughs) That's interesting information. I bet they won't do anything with that. (laughs) It's going to set up, it's set up, it's set up, it's set up. Uh, It's really fun. We got the Triceratops scene, which is a good good Dr. Grant scene. He puts his... It's it's nice to see him kind of nerd out and actually just be excited about a dinosaur and mm-hmm. be a little kid himself. And Sam Neill has been so restrained and adult in the way that he plays the character that to see him just be gaga over this triceratops is is pretty sweet. Mm-hmm. Although it always, as a kid, I always felt gypped that we didn't get to see like a triceratops because the triceratops was always one of the coolest certainly triceratops and stegosaurus of the plant eaters they were the cool plant eaters and, yeah and they got the plates and the spikes and the yeah very sad that we didn't get to see the triceratops mm-hmm. actually do anything but what a great i mean that's that's not cgi that's just a robot and what a, what a great robot animated hydraulic creature lays on its side with the its lungs expanding yeah a great little moment yeah yeah Samuel L. Jackson, we're getting all we're getting all this great control room stuff. Mm-hmm. Nedry's espionage and Samuel L. Jackson, right? But like Pulp Fiction, I think is ninety four. So one year later, this guy's going to be a huge star. But right now, he's just some some indie guy. Really? I mean, he's he's well known. He was in uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Oh yeah, and, like yeah. people people like Samuel L. Jackson. He's a known quantity, but he's still he's not megawatt. Like you cast him as any number of the leads i mean he could be your malcolm he could be anything in this movie up to and including grant but not at the time that they cast him he's the computer guy that adds a little splash of color Uh, no no pun intended but someone who couldn't yet i guess afford to just phone in his performance which he started doing after he became megawatt yeah no he's great he's he adds uh i'm sorry it must be internalized racism he literally but also figuratively adds color to this movie his cigarette is its own character. Yeah, his cigarette is its own character in this movie. And uh, that's where St- Spielberg, the hack stereotypist, really goes a long way, actually. He's not afraid to just employ archetypes. One of the best piece of writing advice that I saw is some somebody said, I forget who, somebody famous said, you'll read it in Strunk and White and stuff like that, that you should never use cliches. Actually, you should use cliches all the time. You should just deploy them. Like when you don't want people to notice what you're doing, you can use some cliches to get through that and then save your big metaphor original thing for for when you want it to hit. And I think characters are the same way. Obviously, you want three-dimensional characters, but when you have these little supporting parts that have to pop, what you really want is for it to just be a stereotype, something that the, the audience instantly sees that character and knows exactly who they are well, and what and their the, deal the is. Metonymy goes really far in those uh, yeah. things too. So a prop like a cigarette or like a hat or like any number of other things that can be really used symbolically as a part mm-hmm. for the whole right? can go really, really far. And I think with Samuel L. Jackson, it's great with Muldoon and his rifle is like, you know, this and guy, his hat. Like, shoot her, work her back. You know, this guy from the very beginning, as I've said it, for me, it goes a little bit far with our villains, uh, with Gennaro and with this stupid, <laughs> 
Newton, Newman, whatever his name is. Um, <laughs> Wayne Knight. Wayne Knight. Yeah. I always forget. Um, who's lost a lot of weight and thereby seems to have lost his career. Oh, well, I guess there's not a lot to talk about. I mean, there's, we're, we're getting a bunch of unlikable character stuff. The next Mrs. Malcolm and women will inherit the earth and the next X. Yeah. And, Mrs. uh, Malcolm. That stuff, uh, watching it as an adult, I'm like, I was like, why did I like these people? All these beats are just kind of, these aren't particularly likable characters. I mean, they're fine, but this, we have only so much real estate to spend on our characters and this, and we're spending it on Sam Neill feeling grumpy and displaced by Jeff Goldblum being funny and Laura Dern just kind of being a bimbo. Is that really what you want to spend the real estate on? Like, it works. It's fine. But mm-hmm. You know what else might work is something quality. I don't know. But I think that brings us to the T-Rex attack. Yay. Yay. Mm. Lawyer gets a lawyer kill. Lawyer gets a lawyer kill. Uh, man, what a match pass in suspense filmmaking. It's so it's subtle. There's not a lot of music. John Williams is really reserved there. Slash not there. John Williams always knows when not to put music in or maybe Spielberg does but mm-hmm. um, for someone who's famous as being somebody who just scores the crap out of every moment Williams actually holds back a lot in this movie there's a lot of scenes that just don't have music the everything that do they do to build the T-Rex in your mind the obviously the water and the leg on the window and stuff like that so good I don't know <laughs> that I have anything profound to say it besides that but what a what a great suspense set piece and what a delivery of everything the movie's been promising up to that point i mean this movie yeah, is and a lot of it really is silly too when you think about it like if you're a giant predator probably you don't thunder around as you're stalking your prey yeah and sh- make tremors well also how big would you have to be to actually like godzilla could maybe make a water glass but that t-rex is like the size no of way. an elephant or something he's not making the water glass yeah but it, it doesn't matter he's been so built up in our minds even even well, by elephants th- are that way too actually elephants have a really quiet footstep right you don't know that because in order to communicate elephant for 75 or 100 years of filmmaking sound effect artists have made them thunder everywhere they mm-hmm. go it's the same thing that spielberg does with jaws he's so built up in our mind that everything he does in the last third of the movie is ridiculous he's just eating somebody and he's ramming at this boat like a this is nothing of the Jaws doesn't make sense. The special effect of Jaws isn't all that great. You can kind of see the hinges, but it doesn't matter because Jaws exists in our mind perfectly. Well, even just let, let's think about it from this perspective. He's a hunter, a predator who can only see movement. So he's hunting at night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just nothing about <clears throat> it that makes sense. That actually makes sense. And you've never actually stopped and thought about it. Yeah, nor should you. I mean, we're not criticizing the movie. It's just yeah. we're praising it for being constructed such that... You don't stop and think about all of the silly absurdities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it, it, you should be kind of annoyed that I pointed that stuff out even. Mm-hmm. That's what I think. Like, you should be annoyed that I had that thought. I'm annoyed with myself that I had that. I don't know. It's like, who wants to stop and deconstruct these things for their plausibility? No, the only reason to deconstruct them now is to say, you never do, because it's a well-made movie. Uh, uh, the answer is night vision, Jake. 
<laughs> yeah, or you could answer them like an idiot that wants to destroy all wonder and happiness. <laughs> That's another option. <laughs> Good option. Uh, they look expensive. Put it back. Oh, that lawyer. I'm glad, I'm glad <laughs> he got like expensive. Are they heavy? Yeah. Yes, then they're expensive. <laughs> it's good. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you guys enjoy how I did, lame and cartoony this is. <laughs> uh, I'm kind of annoyed that you don't like how cartoony it is and uh, where yeah. you keep foiling you here by liking it. <laughs> I, I just, I don't know. What were you going to say, Ben? No, oh, it, it threatens to humanize the lawyer there in the car. Like, actually, maybe he'll turn out to be half decent and be nice to the kids. And he's not an absolute jerk. Right. He just seems to be like a stuck up. But then he left us, you know. <laughs> no, actually, he's just inhuman scum. <laughs> well, and also Spielberg, I think, is a kinder person at this point than he, like in Jaws. It's like the Kitchener boy is going to die and erupt in a cloud of blood. Spielberg doesn't want to do something analogous to that. He doesn't want the innocent to die, which means he needs these cartoon villains in order to have somebody that we can we can cheer when this. Obviously, the T-Rex has to eat somebody. Obviously, we have to be cheering for the T-Rex when he does it. So, given those two inevitable facts, who's it going to be? The Colin Trevorrow ones are even lamer in the way that they are like, he's an evil corporate villain who wants to sell dinosaurs to the military or something. It's just like <laughs> pathetic. So, I guess I'll take Nedry and... Uh, what's his face? Gennaro. Gennaro. We've already talked about the Nedry scene, which is next. He's... Falling prey to that completely not in CGI, I think, Dilophosaurus or whatever it's called. Yeah. Very sad. Dennis Nedry, we never knew, knew ye. As a kid, that probably got the most genuine laughs, not his demise, but just his, uh, get the stick, get the, like all the sitcom stuff that he's doing with the dinosaur. Mm-hmm. It's that nervous kind of. All the, all the time you have a bad feeling in the pit of your stomach as you watch him do it. Like, it's funny, but also it's not going to end well. Well, yeah, it's like it's the bully picking on the kid that you know knows kung fu or something like that. It's just you feel bad for his arrogance. It, it actually makes you pity him somehow. Uh, all right. We get to, we already mentioned they have to run from the car in the tree because this movie is really generous with its suspense, even when there aren't dinosaurs. Yep. And then we get the truck, the T-Rex chases the truck. Objects in the mirror may be closer than they yeah, appear. Yeah, that's a good visual joke. It's great. No, it's just that Spielberg, he's always going to be a little more generous and do things that put you in the scene and stuff. And I like how this T-Rex is like a dog with a car, like it's kind of a, a dog with like a, a toy race car or something, like it's nuzzling it to try and mm-hmm. make it flip and stuff. It's very good animal behavior there. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of my cat. Yeah. The, the T-Rex in that moment and the raptors a little bit later. It is good, it, good capture of animal behavior. Yeah, this movie has more genuine animal behavior in its dinosaurs than any of the stupid sequels where, where they're just like, raw monsters. But yeah, okay, so now we're in a tree. Sam Neill's a great father figure already. He left us. He left That's us. That's not what I'm going to do. Yeah. And we're, we have a random scene of dinosaur wonderment with the, the brachiosaur eating leaves and... Feeding it and sneezing on the girl. Sneezing on the girl, yeah. <laughs> Actually, the, the T-Rex chases a good bit after this. Yeah, you're, we're a little con- you, confused. You also jump to ahead. the death of Dennis, which comes way later. That's way later, yeah. Yep. Way later after what? 
Well, you forgot about the whole scene where Dennis shuts down everything and then goes and steals everything. Yeah, we didn't talk we, about much about the build up to the T Rex. So. That's not build up to T Rex. Or wait, no, sorry. Now I'm confused. Here's how it happens: Dennis goes in, he steals the stuff. The storm comes. Get, right. Things are getting more ominous. Right, right. We run back to the jeeps from the tri- to, to the Triceratops, and then we go into. Before Dennis dies, we actually have the whole set piece right. with the T Rex. Yeah. Right. We and the get, lawyer gets eaten. The lawyer gets yep. eaten. Actually, Grant and Lex make do the thing where they're they go over the edge and they're mm-hmm. yep. which is one of the more agonizing Hitchcock suspense moments of will they get out of the way? There's actually two separate will we get out of the way before this car falls on us set yeah. sequences in this movie. And they're both pretty like, ah, come on, grab the <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah. Good just good classic meat and potatoes suspense. Then we cut back to, you know, this whole time we're going back to the control room and watching Hammond be sad and all that. And then we, and then we go to Nedry, he hits this, I think then he dies. Okay. Then we climb out of the car. Then, then we climb out of, get, get Timmy out of the tree. He's, he's had a lot of work to do though. Is, is, does he die right then? Because he's got to go steal the stuff. He's got to like, get in the first wreck where he's maybe going to the wrong he has to spin the dial and then he's gotta we gotta come back to him i think he's going to i I guess it doesn't really matter that much but i think he's going to shut down power and steal stuff while the storm brews while our heroes are doing uh triceratops stuff maybe even and then he's already stolen the stuff and he's on the road by the time our heroes are being menaced by the t-rex Okay. Yeah, and then maybe maybe he hits the sign, then we cut back to getting Timmy out of the tree, then we cut back to Nedry, he dies. Then we cut then then Laura Dern and Muldoon and everybody show up and we have the T Rex chase. Hmm. And then and then we cut to Grant and the kids and they They're in the tree and the lullaby and Do yeah. you think he saw us? Do you think he saw us? Yeah. And Grant in, in his great movement from great psychological movement has gone from A to B. And that is where he shall stay. Uh, he runs the gamut of human emotion from A to B. He is bad father to good father. I'm not really criticizing. I'm just observing how simple this movie is. I sure, I sure did love it as a kid, and I look forward to showing it to my kids. It's not that bad of a, uh, of a jump. What you have is a guy who is scared of having kids and doesn't like them and doesn't want to be around them, and then kids are in danger, and he steps up, and he does what he's got to do. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they uh, bond through trauma. It's true. It's true. And it's, it's sweet. And Spielberg knows how to direct those kids. And mm-hmm. I like how little dignity he gives the, the girl for not liking dinosaur. Like she gets sneezed on and everything. That's, mm-hmm. it's funny. We, we don't feel the need to, we, we're given all the empowerment stuff to Laura Dern. So we don't need to give it to the little girl too. Well, she gets some of it later. She gets to hack the. Yeah, which is good. I'm, I'm glad she got, I mean, she, everybody needs something to do. And actually I think Crichton gave the, made the boy the computer things and, and call me a feminist, but I don't mind giving the girl the computer thing. Give her something. Gotta give her something. But speaking of feminism, I think we've gotten to it. I mean, basically Laura Dern and Muldoon are about to go on their, their little adventure. It's going to end on in Muldoon's death and all those Laura Dern jump scares you were talking about. Mm-hmm. But before that, we've got the classic because I'm a, and you're, and you're a, and then we cut to her and she's got this <laughs> sneer on her face and she says, look, <laughs> we can discuss sexism and survival situations when I get back. <laughs> uh, but even that feels so 
I don't know. It's just so silly. I mean, it is just like, it's what we've talked about this a million times, but we usually we're talking about it because we're talking about how much more sophisticated feminism in movies is now. These days, you just don't have Hammond question it because why would anyone question it? These days, it's like, of course, she's the hero of the movie. She could fight dinosaurs just as well as any man. Why was that ever in, in doubt? It's just b- built into the story. And then they're going to 100% use her feminine vulnerability for everything that she endures and make her obviously weak and dependent. Mm-hmm. But this movie is like, she's just going to play a heroin standard, standard issue girl for mm-hmm. most of the movie tough i get you know i mean she can sure. she can run run from dinosaurs with the best of them but but she's also given most of the screaming mm-hmm. type stuff which is what she would do in a movie with a girl in it but yeah so i don't know what else there is to say about that it's just that really ham-fisted uh, this came out right after terminator 2 which also has some she's tough she she's she can fight those Terminators now, kind of. Terminator 2 is way more mean and aggressive, though, with its Sarah Connor. Yes, yes. She's a nasty person. She is nasty. But the movie kind of acknowledges it. It's like, uh, right. poor John Connor. The, w- the way that John Connor can tell, like, the, the, ter- the bad Terminator pretends to be his mom. And then the bad Terminator is like, I feel maternal sympathy for you. And he's like, well, that's not my mom. And he, <laughs> he shoots it or something. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so movies were both more silly in their feminism and maybe a little bit more self-aware uh, back then because we just hadn't been browbeaten with it for so long. So I don't know. Do you guys want to talk about anything? I'm just going to get us to the Raptors in the kitchen. I think that's really the next really exciting thing to talk about. I mean, you get the fence, the power coming back on. Sure. I would just say with the Laura Dern scene, it's awesome. And even though... I don't, every, everything about the way it's constructed with Muldoon realizing they're being hunted to him telling her to run to her run through the jungle where nothing happens but it feels like she's about to die yeah John she, Williams is doing great work there to yeah he's, he's doing great work it just it's just an awesome sequence mm-hmm. yeah uh-huh. well and if even though Grant has told us exactly what the Raptors are going to do I mean they just follow the playbook that he lays out that's right you still feel this battle of wits between Muldoon and the Raptor. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember particularly expecting it to go down. I mean, maybe, maybe it's telegraphed. Maybe you're supposed to know that that's what's going to happen. Then he gets that clever girl line, which makes him the coolest movie character of all time. Mm. Or certainly that's what I would have said when I was, yeah, I was nine. Again, pretty ridiculous that the paleontologist has some idea of how birds of prey and pack animals hunt but yes. the, but the expert hunter game hunter ra- yeah. game hunter and raptor expert has no idea what's happening yeah i kind of think he should have survived as i said he he and genero both survive and team up to do awesome dinosaur fighting in the novel and that, that was superior uh, <sighs> and uh, laura Dern character stays back and helps put a wet cloth on jeff goldblum's head or something like that that's, that's how it should have been if you took your red pill you'd understand that all right I think I don't have that much more to say about this movie. I mean, you just have a fantastic climax. You've got that kitchen scene, which is, I want to say, the best suspense scene that Spielberg's ever done. I Hmm. defy you to name a better Spielberg suspense. I mean, you can name a bunch of great ones, but I just Spielberg is a master of geography. He's a master of putting you in the room with the characters so you know the layout, you know that what they need to do you're following them 
them through and you're thinking with them and it's not just a bunch of frantic action and running around. It's, can I make it from here to there? You see the kids, you see what they're seeing, you see what they're going to try and do. And then there's a su- surprise, subversion, setup, payoff. It's just, uh, I defy you to name a better St- Steven Spielberg sequence than the Raptors in the kitchen in terms of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's really great. And I loved it as a kid. I mean, it was my favorite scene in the movie as a kid. Just the Raptors were, were the rock stars of the movie. and they were doing their thing and it was just really fun to see this smart evil dinosaur yeah i don't know i don't know what else to say and i love all the little touches like unless they figured out how to open doors and then we smash cut to the handle turning on the door good it's great good stuff and it's a good scene to notice how much spielberg keeps the dinosaurs in in your mind without actually using a lot of cgi because a lot of the raptors are just like a foot puppet like it's it's just a foot that you put in front of the camera that you're shooting from low so i mean that's all it is we, we don't we don't have a whole dinosaur that we're directing we just have a little little robot foot that we're or probably not even a robot foot just a, a a foot a claw that we slam in front of the thing they tack they they gotta get that door closed oh no ah, uh, oh we're running through the Things were swinging on the bones. Oh, it's the T-Rex. How do you get in there? Who cares? <laughs> Where did he come from? How did he surprise us all? He's a giant monster. Who cares? Yes. <laughs> oh, it's so perfectly timed. I watched it yesterday. I'd already watched the movie, but I just wanted to watch that scene again. And I watched it and the timing of that raptor rearing back and, and running towards them. And then the T-Rex slamming into shot and grabbing him. It makes no sense, but it's, 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 it's awesome. Uh, and you have the theme, the Jurassic Park theme playing the, the hymn to science. And now it's saying, like, I don't know what, the, what it's saying there. It's like, yay, science over, overruns and destroys everything. Man doesn't stand a chance. And you have that banner come floating down and. It's perfect. And Spielberg famously came up with that late in the game. I think, I forget what the, what was supposed to happen. They were supposed to defeat the Raptors some other way. But Spielberg, being a great showman, was like, wait a second. We need the T-Rex to come back and do one final thing. And it really, it really makes the movie. Mm-hmm. And then we're on the helicopter and John Williams is telling us how magical everything was. And we're believing him. <laughs> Yes, he does. And that is Jurassic Park. Any other thoughts, gentlemen, before we bid adieu to this film? No, I think the only thing kind of worth saying is it is a real new step for Spielberg to end a movie with as much mommy and daddy energy as he does. Mm -hmm. And that's just another thing about his evolution and the stories he wants to tell and why this is probably the end of fun kid kids movies hmm. yeah but you don't really see that sort of like family unit congeal in a third act and anywhere else in his right in and jaws movies. our hero has a family but it's kind of incidental to ultimately where the story goes it's a boy's adventure story it's men on a mission yeah uh, and then indiana jones is obviously a man on a mission he uses and discards women quite famously as he yeah, as he desires and he deals with his daddy issues but Right. He's the, but we, the audience identification figure are the son. And then 
I think somewhere around the late eighties, Spielberg figures out that his father was the one that like got walked out on as opposed to walk out. And suddenly we have the sympathetic dad relationship in 1989's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade about father and son coming together. And then a couple of years later, we have Jurassic Park with, you just got to be a good dad. And then we're making dad, not just dad movies like Tom Hanks plays something from the 1940s, but we're making movie, even when we do Minority Report, it's like Tom Cruise's trauma is that he lost his son and his, like every, everything yep. revolves around dad mm-hmm. energy. And Spielberg's by this time happily married to Kate Capshaw and they've got a boatload of kids and he's just... He likes being a dad. I mean, he he really likes kids. You know, I think it is one of the things that's evident in his movies and is admirable about him. He enjoys kids. He enjoys family life. He enjoys fatherhood. He's he's enjoyed reclaiming that part of his life from what he felt like was the disaster of his parents' marriage. And it seems like him and Capshaw have one of the better Hollywood they're marriages. Still married? Yeah, they're still married. Yeah, still mm-hmm. together. I mean, it's it's Spielberg's second marriage. He had a disastrous early marriage to some starlet, Amy Irving. But so I'm not saying he's like Mr. Morality or anything like that. I'm just saying that's where he's at and that's where his movies are going. Ben, how many uh, flies trapped in amber? Fly trapped in amber canes, actually, we'll say. All right. Out of 19, do you give to Jurassic Park? Uh, 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 15. Cool. Yeah. Docking at a couple canes for? Just being a collection of scenes more than a movie, not... uh, I don't know. I don't know how to, yeah, that's just, that's just an off the cuff. It works so wonderfully well as it is, but you can't imagine the Jaws version that is telling a more cohesive, emotionally involving story. And that could have been something too. Jake, how many fly canes out of 19? Zero, but mosquito canes. Oh yeah. 17. 17. Ducking at two for. Just not being all there, but I mean, when I when I step back and just view it through the lens of great, fun, compelling, imaginative, awe-inspiring movies, even if you want to call it collections of scenes, it's 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 pretty great. Yeah, it's a good collection. It's, of it's, scenes. Hard, it's hard to beat. I mean, I mean, a- it's not it's not a great. It, it doesn't. You know, I came out of Jaws saying, man, I'd forgotten that I actually like movies. I did not come out of Jurassic Park thinking, I forgot that I actually like movies. But mm-hmm. I came out of Jaws or uh, Jurassic Park thinking, man, I do like having fun. I do like fun. I wish things were more fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I give it about 15, I guess. 15, 16 uh, mosquito canes. I can't believe Ben gave it fly canes. It's, <laughs> I'm a jerk. Yeah, what a jerk. <laughs> Talk about cynicism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's... I don't think this is a scale on the hide, see what I did there, of the filmmaking and the construction that went into the truly great Spielberg entertainments that are Raiders and E.T. and jaws i I think this movie's pretty flimsy actually compared to yeah i agree compared to those but dinosaurs yay dinosaurs yay it's got dinosaurs it's got music it's got great sequences it's so much fun i'd probably (laughs) rather show it to my future you know 12 year old son than raiders of the lost ark or any of the things we we named 
So ET. Yeah, maybe ET is the exception, but also I'm less excited about ET because it's just less exciting. It's about a boy and his dog and it doesn't have dinosaurs eating people and stuff. So in terms of adventure movies, this one's right up there. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I do have to dock at a few mosquito canes for being essentially ridiculous and stupid, but it's good. And for killing civilization, as I persuasively made the case earlier with the death of literalism literalism or whatever i said uh okay so oh i know what i'm not doing triumph was the word that you wanted the triumph of literacism yeah liter yeah uh, we don't have to recreate it you know who also triumphs caitlin she triumphs all the time because and particularly today because she's our patron choice award of awesomeness winner ben what do you find the most triumphant about caitlin I find it triumphant the way that she crushes the heads of uh, velociraptors with her heel. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Something that a Christian woman would do. Mm-hmm. She's breaking the, I'm trying to think of a, <laughs> the glass ceiling of a Jeep. <laughs> what's, what's the Jurassic what? Park? What's the Jurassic Park equivalent of a glass ceiling? A glass ceiling. She's, uh, there's literally a glass ceiling. The T-Rex is the one that breaks the glass ceiling in this movie. Well. And he's a girl. Is this whole thing a metaphor for oh, feminism? You know what? Maybe you're right. Saying women are really T-Rexes and they mm. want to eat children. Mm. Well, that's not what Caitlin's like. No, no, no. Caitlin's the opposite. <laughs> She's like a velociraptor testing a fence to find how many different awesome things she can do with. I don't know. Jake, until next time. <laughs> we spared no expense. 